KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a minute. Take these demons from my brain. I can't get caught in that thought again. And all these patterns seem the same. First my mind begins to slip And then I fall and lose my grip And it all comes back to this Take these demons from my brain I can't get caught in that thought again And all these patterns seem the same First my mind begins to slip Then I fall and lose my grip And it all comes back to this That's right, it all comes back to this. Hi, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM on the web at kopn.org and also at MikeHagan, H-A-G-A-N dot com. All right, uh, thanks to everyone for being here. A special 9-11 edition of the program and a special guest, Mr. Richard K. Moore, the author of Escaping the Matrix. Richard will be with us in just a few minutes, but yeah, five years ago this morning, you guys, the World Trade Center towers, down they came. And that's a metaphor we've seen repeatedly ever since. And I remember it very clearly the whole day. And actually, I remember the last five years very damn clearly. But it was a most incredible day for sure. The first person I talked to <clears throat> was Kent Stedman, of course. You know, I called the Bardo and said, what the F is going on? That was at probably 10 o'clock. I was in... Um, Colorado, in Denver at the time. And, uh, you know, it still gives me creeps. But uh, he answered in one word, a German word. He said, Reichstag. (laughs) And, uh, you know, ever since I've been pretty interested in what happened that day. And as I said before, I'm not certain what happened on the 11th of September, 01. I mean, I know what I watched with my eyes. But, I'm certain that the official story behind what actually happened is a story of horse manure. I can say that on the air. I got in trouble for saying the the other way a while back, but I can say horse manure. How about equine excrement? I can say that. I can say lots of things. I got ways, you know. My my words can work around their words. So, At any rate, uh, we've got a special show lined up tonight. But first, my honors, as always. Thanks to Debbie, Debbie Johnson. Free Range Radio Theater. All right? Awesome stuff. Every Monday at 10 p.m., an hour before Radio Orbit, Debbie does it up. Isaac Asimov with us, as he's been for the last few weeks. But uh, great stuff, as always, on Free Range Radio Theater. All right, Kelvin and Jason doing it up before that. Jazz plus blues equals nobody knows what. Uh, Tech Radio before that. Always helping me out on Tech Radio. And um, Jeff Wheeler. Early on Monday from 3 to 5 with Uncommon Light, Uncommonly Good Music that Jeff 
picks up on. So anyway, uh, Mondays, great stuff on KOPN. And last week, another wonderful contribution from Jay, our good friend, Jay Widener, uh, producer of a new and amazing video documentary, 2012, The Odyssey, thanks to Jay and everyone else who participated uh, last week in the program. Thanks to the Wim Search Machine for great music, as always. We heard uh, that during the show last week. And if you missed it, as always, it's on the web, www.mikehagan.com. And uh, just uh, sneak over to the archives, the program archives, or the music archives. There's great stuff hidden in both of those areas of the website. So, All right, tonight, uh, as I said, Richard K. Moore, an author, an historian, a social and political commentator. He has a history in the software business, believe it or not. Uh, but he has written a new book that's called Escaping the Matrix. We'll talk with Richard for the great majority of the program, uh, beginning in just a few minutes. We'll mix in some, uh, some lovely music from my friend Lizzie West and the White Buffalo. Of course, uh, Wonderful independent music from Lizzie and Tony, Tony Caraldo. You know, he goes AKA the White Buffalo, but uh, Lizzie West and Tony Caraldo. They actually performed tonight uh, in New York City at the Cutting Room, a special 9 11 event for them, and another one here from me to you. So, all right, we started things out uh, actually with Lizzie, and that song was called Take These Demons. All right, uh, so we got a great show in store for you. Stick around. It just took me a couple seconds here to get things straight, and I'll be back in a few minutes. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Uh, Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N.com, also K-O-P-N dot O-R-G. We'll do one more from Lizzie right now, and we'll come back with Richard K. Moore in just a few minutes, okay? This one's called Brooklyn Bound. Here's to you, baby. I love you, Lizzie. If you can't sleep at night, let me Turn the radio on I'll come in singing this song And if I sing you one more sad song Would you think me very weak If I were to sing you one more sad, sad, sad song Cross you over into sleep Thinking of me And these three chords in my acoustic guitar And our roof that out on New York When we were Brooklyn bound If I were to sing you one more sad song Would you break to hold me again? If I were to sing you one more sad, sad, sad song Would you think to remember where I had to close Because there ain't nothing worse than getting caught In the stare of a man who won't give you his did before
Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. That's Lizzie West and the White Buffalo from her CD, I Pledge Allegiance to Myself. And we'll hear more from Lizzie and Tony throughout the program tonight. Okay, it's Mike. As I said, uh, Radio Orbit, and hi, everyone. Okay, got things worked out here, and everything's cool. So, hello to everybody. Listen over the web, and uh, locally, here, live or otherwise, we are streaming right now, and every week... Uh, via Cosmic Waves Radio on the web at www.cosmicwavesradio.com. We're always on Channel 2 there. And uh, thanks to everybody over there, the girls and the guys uh, that make it happen, live on the net every Monday night. All right. Thanks also to Larry, the web wizard, as always, doing great stuff. And as a matter of fact, for tonight's program, uh, Larry, Larry made a really cool uh, escaping the Matrix desktop and uh, screensaver. That's real cool. So I think it's just a couple of megs if you want to experiment with some new sort of cutting-edge uh, technology that Larry always um, has in store for you. Go on to the web. Uh, go to MikeHagan.com and just scroll down a little bit. And underneath Richard K. Moore's information, you'll see a little uh, image there and some stuff that Larry's got put together for you. So check it out. It's real cool stuff, all right? All right, we've got the live uh, chat room. It's up and active. People in there saying hi. And hello to everybody there. I'll peek in there. Uh, for questions and comments as we move along here, but uh, let's not waste any more time in getting to our guest, all right? It's bright. It's early. It might not even be bright. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, he's with us from his home in Ireland. He's been on the program before, and we are happy to welcome him back. Richard K. Moore. Hey, Richard, hi. Hey, I'm really honored you uh, invited me to this uh, special program. Well, it's a privilege to have you back on the show, and, um, you know, I don't do politics very often, but when I do, you know, I choose wisely. <laughs> or at least I think so. So, anyway, okay. So, uh, what is it? It's five fifteen in the morning, Ireland time. Where, you, where for, for the people who aren't familiar, Richard, you're in Kalar, Wexford, 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 Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Wexford, Ireland. And A little sort of seacoast town in the southeast corner. Yeah, a beautiful place from the imagery that I've seen on some of your websites. But anyway, okay. Well, it's early in the morning time there, and we appreciate you being. With us, and we've got lots to talk about tonight. So, so thanks. Here we go. All right. Okay. You've got a new book. Um, we've talked about. You know, I when I ran across your work originally, Richard, we've we've talked about it once or twice on the air. But you wrote actually a paper, and I'm not sure when uh, the paper was actually written. That was called Escaping the Matrix. But yeah, you know, that was in back in 2000. Okay, so that was. And uh, I did that for for Whole Earth magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, they did a really good job of editing. I mean, they made a lot of contributions to the article. And it ended up being really better written than, from the writer's point of view, than most of the stuff I had done. And it got a lot of circulation there. So yeah, it did. <clears throat> that was my little bit of fame so far in life. Is that, but I still get, I get hundreds of letters from people over the years. They run across the article and they, they say, you know, it's, 
I'm really glad somebody finally said what I always kind of thought in the back of my mind. So <laughs> yeah. Kind of struck a chord. Yeah, it sure did. And, and uh, certainly the movie, The Matrix, was where you grabbed the metaphor from. But uh, as, as profound a film has been made, uh, it's just a matter of if you're paying attention to it or not, you know? Yeah, it was, it was totally different than the, the sequels. The sequels were just science fiction. Right, right. The first one was like a really amazing metaphor. Hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit. You you expanded the paper into a book. Uh, I've got a copy of it here sitting in front of me. It's called Escaping the Matrix. Uh, I'm not sure who published it. Richard himself, probably. Not many people want to put their <laughs> name on the bottom of this one, but well, I never even tried to get a publisher. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing you have to wait a year before it gets in print. Right. So um, a friend of mine generously stepped in, and he. Uh, did the kind of copy editing and formatting that a publishing house would do. And then he's um, advanced the funds for getting the book in print and all that. So it's really the collaborative effort. Couldn't have done it without him. All right. Well, it's... Uh, uh, so so that with modern technology, you know, we paid $100, and now the book's in print. <laughs> and uh, it's available through Ingram, so bookstores can order it. And it's on all the... You know, Amazon and Alibris and all the online right. places. So well, it's so it works cool. really well these days. You know, you don't need publishers. Uh, you know, talk about escaping the matrix. I mean, you actually do it in practice there, by the way. You actually publish your book. I love it. So, all right. Well, uh, first things first, the matrix. Why did you call the book that? And, and you know, if, if, if a matrix as such exists or something or the metaphor is a real one, what, what is it? What's going on? Let's talk about what the matrix is. Well, the part of the metaphor was I was referring to basically the propaganda versus reality. Um, the whole concept, it's not just that what we see on TV is a distorted version or it conceals some of the facts. It's, it's really that it presents a whole view of the world, which is just um, totally different than what's really going on in the world. Um, and, you know, the simplest example, of course, is Iraq. I mean, if you listen to Bush and look at the official pronouncements, it, they're still saying that they went into Iraq to, um, you know, get weapons of mass destruction and bring democracy to the Iraqis and this kind of stuff. Whereas it's quite obvious that it's simply a matter of uh, a game of controlling oil sources and it's a struggle between Ch Russia and China and the United States and it's geopolitics and economics. Right, in a very and important there's nothing at all to do with the furthest thing from anybody's mind is bringing democracy to the Iraqis. Um, so that's just a current example. And yet, when you, when, you, when kids go to school in ten years, or when you read the history books, they'll talk about how the United States went to Iraq to bring democracy, and this and that happened. Uh, mm. And that'll be what's in the history books. Let's hope not. So that whole thing of current media translates into history, translates into our view of the world, is just is unreal. It isn't ever what really happened. And so that's what I mean by the matrix metaphor. And so history as an example. And let's let's start off with sort of recent history. Five years ago today, we had a wonderful example of something that happened, and then a story that, as I as I mentioned, I don't know if you were li listening at the oh, beginning of the program, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still to this day I don't know what uh, really happened. I'm not sure who does, but I certainly know that I haven't been told the truth about it. Uh, you know, I can I can spot. I can spot a story when I'm being fed one, you know. But that's a recent part of history, and then let's move backward from there, okay? Well, let's let's talk about 
World Trade Center a bit. I mean, yeah. I think we should on 9-11. Hell yeah. Um, and everybody has their own way of uh, <clears throat> approaching the question. Some people talk about why didn't the fighters intercept the, you know, et cetera. Um, but I think the most solid piece of evidence, something that anybody can understand and, and appreciate the value of, is on the day or the next day <clears throat> of 9-11, Larry Silverstein was on CNN. Larry Silverstein is the owner of the World Trade Center Focus. That's right, that's right. And he said, he mumbled something about, oh, there had been so much loss of life and we couldn't put out the fires. So we decided to pull World Trade Center number seven. Hmm. Now, we decided to pull. That is very clear. That means we decided to set off explosives and bring it down. Right, and, that, and, and then he said, and then, we, then we, de- we made the decision to pull and then we sit and watched it fall down. He said that right on CNN. So... That's World Trade Center number seven. That was the third building. Now the question that wasn't hit by an airliner. Oh no, it wasn't hit by an airliner. No, World Trade Center. A few fires. Nobody even knows about that. See seven. He said we decided to pull it. It's not a theory. Right. He said it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And pull and pull is jargon in the in is language in that in that particular area of expertise for for pull it drop it right. It's an act. It's a decision. Let's pull it. Now the 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 big quest the big issue there that that is revealed is. That means that World Trade Center number seven had been carefully wired with explosives before September 11. Otherwise, they couldn't have pulled it. It takes days, it takes weeks usually to set up a large building for a demolition. You need to have, wire all these explosives together. You have to have computers. You have to model the actual building and where the where it needs to be uh, demolished so that it falls straight down. Uh, you could probably rush it in a couple of days if you know if it was a top job, but it. Right. But you certainly couldn't have done it the morning of the 11th. In other words, it was wired for explosive before September 11th. Why? Right. Now, Why? Here's, now, now, here's the other thing. For people who are not familiar with World Trade Center building number 7, which, which Richard is referring to right now, there's a tremendous amount of uh, information about this on the web. If you're interested, you can go find it. But uh, you know, a picture or a video, in this case, is worth a thousand words. And uh, I might suggest that everybody go pop over to Kent Stedman's website at cyberspaceorbit.com, by the way, and look at the little video that he's got planned uh, right from CNN on the morning of uh, September 11, 2001. And you'll see in the lower left-hand corner of uh, that video, as the, uh, as the north, I, I don't know which damn tower is on fire, uh, but you'll see an explosion on the lower left and uh, a big puff of smoke. And guess what? That's a building a big building, World Trade Center number seven, and it went down without anybody touching it. Okay, and and uh, and and the video is right there for anybody who wants to see it. So if you combine this with what Richard is telling you happened, and and all the stuff is on the transcript, Silverstein's words, everything. Okay, so th- that's what happened. Uh, and please proceed, Richard. So I mean, to me, that's. That piece of evidence is something that, that should get anybody, no matter how conservative they are or whatever, get them thinking. Well, right, right. Number seven, everybody. Remember the number seven. All right, it's an yeah. important number, by the way. Uh, but, yeah. but but that's all you need to ask. All right, go on, Richard. So once, you, once you're willing to begin asking questions and you start looking at the web, I mean, yeah, you can find some crazy conspiracy theories. Of course you can. But there's so many videos taken from different angles, and you can see huge huge uh, steel beams thrust upwards and outwards <clears throat> with, you know, following little white puffs of smoke. Um, 
It has nothing to do with collapsing floors. You know, collapsing floors do not eject, you know, 10-foot, 10-meter-long um, steel beams upwards. Um, so, And then once you start looking at the evidence, it's overwhelmed. We do know what happened. You know, they demolished the two buildings. Right. So that they could implement their, have their new Pearl Harbor, which they said they wanted in writing. It's still on their website. And again, this is the this is the uh, uh, the, the architects of the, of, of the new American century, whatever that crap was. Well, it's it's, it's Cheney and Rumsfeld and the gang the gang running the White House. They wrote this paper. And again, um, the name of it, the official name of the paper. Well, it's um, the project. Well, project for new American century is the name. We all call it that. Mm-hmm. That was name of the group. It's something about reevaluating America's defenses or some. Right, right. Like but PNAC was the what, what, what was is the is the call letters. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the yeah. project for the new American century, they spell it all out. They say they want a new. They need a. They need a new Pearl Harbor. Nine Eleven rolls along. Yeah, and they talk about how we. This this was way before Bush came to office. Says we need to take over Iraq. It has nothing to do with Saddam. It right. It was written when. Oh. It was written, like, I think it, that particular document was published like a year before, mm-hmm. in, the, in the year before Bush. But the thing is, it's um, it's a rehash of something they wrote about 10 years earlier. Right, it was like in 89 when it first showed its head. Yeah, so they had another name then, but it's the same group of people. And mm-hmm. Basically, it's, it's it makes sense. It's sort of the next stage of American empire. It's right, the, it's like... With, with peak oil coming and all, you know, you could see why if someone wants to control the world, they want to... Make sure they have their hand on the oil spigot so they can decide who gets the last few drops, whether it's us or them. You know, so it's it's not that it doesn't make sense or that it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's just not the kind of imperialist program that, uh, that most Americans would have any interest in uh, pursuing. <laughs> All right. Speaking of Pearl Harbor, right? I mean, it's the yeah. same story. I mean, m- m- most Americans understanding or version of Pearl Harbor that they've been taught and that they probably repeat to their children. Is probably some sort of a story, a mythology. Well, we again, we we know these things now. It's just the fact that they aren't on CNN doesn't mean that we don't know. Um, after Pearl Harbor, there were there were some admirals and people who got blamed for it uh, falsely, and you know that they weren't paying enough attention. And so, because of that, uh, some high up people, uh, you know, retired military people, spent their life investigating it and. and now it's been published, you know, the last 10 years or so, uh, the exact documents. And it turns out that Roosevelt, um, well, and the people he worked with, um, felt that the United States had to get involved in World War II. Otherwise, uh, the Germans and Japanese were going to be taken over the world. And so we, he needed a way to get into the war. Hmm. Um, because America was very, very anti-war. They were very isolationist. Um and so they talked about, well, we're going to have to, how are we going to provoke the Japanese into making the first move? And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they cut off the oil supplies the and, and the right. froze their assets and did all kinds of, basically war. Japan considered those to be acts of war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we had decoded their signals. <clears throat> and um, the British had as well. And we knew exactly the day they were going to attack. Uh, the valuable aircraft carriers were sent out to sea. And some older ships that didn't have much strategic value were left to play the role of the World Trade Center towers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Churchill sent a bulletin out to all of his specific commanders saying, okay, it's going to be happening in Pearl Harbor, watch out, you know. You know the, uh, Roosevelt didn't send out the same message to his commanders. Instead, he 
told he told the people in Kauai, which is where the advanced lookouts were, he says, oh, we don't need you. You can take the weekend off kind of thing. Um, so, you know, we know it's, it's not in doubt. We know that right. it was arranged mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. for, for a geopolitical reason, a sensible one. You know, right. we wouldn't just want to Hitler to take over the world. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, um, allowed again. Some... what happened was it was a lie. It was a cover story. And people still... I uh, think that all those poor soldiers died because of the Japanese died because uh, Roosevelt wanted them to, mm-hmm. because that's what it took to get Americans angry and get into the war. Mm-hmm. So that's why they called World Trade Center the New Pearl Harbor. Right. Amazing. Again, to focus public opinion, et cetera. But we don't want to spend all our time on this. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, what we'll do is we're going to take a little break. I want to talk a little bit more about it because the main point sure. is that, you know, we need to talk a little bit about, for example, the Constitution of, of the United States of America and just this whole, whole idea that civilization has always been sort of run by elites, but it's just a matter of how they dress it up, sort of. So let, let's talk a little bit more about it in general when we come back. Okay, Richard? Sure. All right, and then we'll move on because there are uh, uh, more important things um, and forward-thinking ideas that need to be approached and talked about, but we've got two and a half more hours uh, to get into that, and I want to make it real clear um, what our position is, or what your position is at least, about you know, what, what the situation is, you know, what, our, what our predicament is, what the social and uh, cultural uh, impasse that we, that, that we face is, and how serious it really is, okay? Excellent, okay. All right, back in just a minute, everybody. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, about 11... 30. Uh, on September 11, 2006, we've got Richard K. Moore live with us from his home in Wexford, Ireland. And uh, we've got Lizzie West coming to you here uh, in just a minute here. Although Lizzie's not with us, uh, she's with us, if you know what I mean. And we'll hear more from Lizzie the whole night and more from Richard in just a minute. Okay, this one is called 19 Miles to Baghdad. Back in just a few minutes. It's Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit. Calls back Billy, I'll be careful. 
Lizzie West and the White Buffalo. That's 19 Miles to Baghdad from their recent released uh, CD, I Pledge Allegiance to Myself. I love it. Thanks, Lizzie and Tony. Great stuff, and we're looking forward to your return uh, to Columbia in just a few days, as a matter of fact. All right, safe travels to both of you and to Laura and the Dharma Dog as well. All right, okay, uh, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN, and uh, with us live from his home in Ireland, Richard K. Moore. Richard, thanks for sticking around. Hello. Hello. Beautiful music. Thank you very much. Uh, she's a friend of mine and a wonderful uh, writer, and both of uh, both of them, her uh, Lizzie and her partner uh, Tony, are wonderful young people writing great music and real heartfelt people. So, is it, is it also sad? Uh, no, not really. In fact, uh, we're gonna we're gonna hear some of the more uh, happy stuff uh, as you and I. Talk about more happy things, I think. So. Okay, good. All right. But for a moment, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the nasty stuff. We were talking at the end of, uh, right before the break there, about basically elite rule and how it's just sort of masked in different ways. But please expand on that a little bit more. And, and if you would, I've got a sort of a bug in my butt tonight about 
the United States Constitution, for example, and the treatment of Native American people before this place was called America, as a matter of fact. Uh, Native peoples that lived here long before Columbus and the gang showed up. Um, well, let, let me just start with the observation that um, if you start right from the beginning of civilization, and it was uh, four or 6,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. and you look at all of history, let's say up until the American Revolution, then obviously it was always controlled by elites. I mean, you know, it was kings, emperors, popes, um, maybe priest classes in some cases, but yeah, that, that's just lords, what it was. I mean, every... Every nation was, had a king or an emperor. Um, that's how countries ran. We were we were just talking about Japan. I mean, he was considered a god king, basically, right, uh, Hirohito? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, you look at anthropology books, most um, of these early king societies, the, the top person was considered to be a god or descended from the gods or mm-hmm. whatever. That was standard. Hmm. Um, that was, was that way in Hawaii. Was um, that in him? You know, you couldn't even stand, you know, look at them, you know, they had, you couldn't stand in their presence, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's how, I mean, that's just how society was with no question, no debate, up until we had these things called democratic revolutions. Um, so really the question is, okay, have we had democracy since then, or do we still have elite rule in another form? Mm-hmm. Now, if you just look at... Um, the actual facts of what goes, what's gone on over the last couple hundred years. You see uh, countries getting into wars and uh, corporations and banks getting rich, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, you can see that the actual fact is is that we follow elite agendas. Hmm. And the people aren't consulted on whether to go to war or not go to war or <clears throat> how to invest uh, the government's money. It's just those decisions are made on a centralized basis. Now, um, so then, then that, so in terms of fact, you can say, well, yeah, clearly things have been run by wealthy people and people at the top. Uh, but in terms of theory, you know, which aren't we supposed to have a democracy? Maybe mm-hmm. it's just not working right. You know? Right. So that's where we get your, your your issue, very good issue about the Constitution. Now, uh, the people who wrote the Constitution did so in secret, <clears throat> you know, in a meeting over a long period of time. They were all wealthy people, slave owners, um, landowners. Uh, they were, you know, they were the elite. They were the elite of the colonies. Right. Um, and James Madison is the one who is generally credited being the main architect or the main author of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And after the Constitution was drafted, there was a big debate throughout the colonies whether or not to adopt it. They were Lots of people who were against it and others who were for it. And the debate was carried out in the form of uh, articles written for newspapers. And these were later collected. They're, they're called the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. James, Ma- James Madison was one of the people who contributed to these. Right, right. And he's, you know, I have a quote in my book, which I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase, but basically what he says is that there has always been the wealthy and the non-wealthy, the landowners, the property owners, and those without property. That's mm-hmm. how society's always worked, and we have to keep it that way. <laughs> and That's uh, working pretty well we, for him. <laughs> yeah, because we've we got, well, we got to guard against is some kind of a democratic uprising where they, you know, so they might go for a more just kind of society. Right. And he said, well, here's how we're going to prevent it. And he spells it right out in his newspaper you know, essay. And he says, well, first of all, we need a large country. 
so that um, if some kind of movement got started, it would be confined to one part of the to one state or a few states, and it, it, it wouldn't become a majority, and we could keep things under control. You know? mm-hmm. And we have to have the Senate where the people last for six years. And, it, and there were, originally there was the Electoral College, so right. they made everything as indirect as possible. And he says the reason for this is so that we can us people with wealth can keep it. Right. I mean, the Bill of Rights had that to be added. That was the design added. of the Constitution. It's not, it's not a distortion. It's not a corruption. It's, that's what it was designed for. Hmm. Um, and then right after, the, after it was adopted, <clears throat> um, then immediately two parties, two big political parties were formed. And half of these, you know, elites wrote the Constitution, went into one of the parties. The other half went into the other party. Um and they had campaigns against each other. <laughs> They're all friends. Right. And it's, nothing's changed ever since. Right. Right. And you still have Gore and Bush. I mean, they're buddies. They probably play golf together. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen uh, great uh, telling images of, of Bush Sr. And, and Bill Clinton, you know, hanging out wherever. I was telling a friend uh, just earlier, I, I actually have a real close friend of mine who, who lives in Aspen. And uh, I was there about uh, two years ago, maybe, and we were having dinner at some fancy place, and in walks Ken Lay, right? <laughs> and and I, and, I mean, and if I wouldn't have been with my son, my one-year-old boy, and my wife, and my good friend, Lucy, who I love, I, I probably would have, you know, that's my excuse, but, I mean, I w- I've never been so close to just getting up and wanting to just let him have it, you know what I mean? Verbally or with? Yes, just to, just verbally, you know, because <laughs> it was so arrogant just to see him walk in the way he did. It was amazing to me, you know. But today, speak of the devil, 9-11 was the day that he was supposed to be sentenced, by the way. Hmm. Uh, and I think Jeff Skilling uh, should have been sentenced today. For those of you out there who are paying attention, I know that 9-11 was the day those guys were supposed to be sentenced, and it wasn't by accident, okay? Huh. Yeah, so it's not going to be in the news. No, it won't be in the news. I'm sure you know they'll find some, it'll be on the back page somewhere. But at, at any rate, uh, they they didn't uh, they didn't sentence Mr. Lay. He got his own sentence a little while back. Oh. So, anyway, please go on. I'm sorry, Richard. Well, we're just talking about the uh, how the Constitution and the whole political system. What about the English? What's the special relationship with the English? They even call it that. Well, the special relationship or whatever. <laughs> Right, and these are the guys we're supposed to be running away from. That were, right? Well, yeah, there was a war of eighteen twelve, then two after the first war. I mean, I think the way you got to look at the United States is that it was a spinoff of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. Um, So before the Revolution, um, America was really a self-governing part of the British Empire. Um, There was a governor in each colony who, theoretically, was in charge, but, but there was a local uh, assembly, uh, elected assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, the, the colonies were self-governing, and they were part of the empire, uh, an important commercial part. Um, the Bos- Boston was the, I think it was the third largest port in the British Empire. So in other words, the, the merchants, bankers, and shipping people, and trading people in Boston were you know, comparable, say, to London or Liverpool as one of the centers of empire, and and that, that local elite was the local wealthy part of the empire. And um, 
what these people realized in America is they said, well, okay, we're participating in the empire. We're making a lot of money from it. What do we need Britain for? <laughs> you know? They aren't, like there was a French and an Indian war that went on, and the British didn't really even help the colonists fight. So it's like they're not protecting us. They're not. All we're doing is giving them, siphoning off part of our income to the crown. Hmm. Um, if we could break off, we could keep our trade going. We'd still trade with all these people we trade with. Uh, and sell our products. And not only that, we could start industrializing because Britain has laws against us industrializing. Um, and then we could, as we conquer the rest of the continent, we have it instead of sharing it with the crown. So really what the American Revolution was about was um, break, breaking off this new company. It's like a spinoff in Silicon Valley. One company splits off from another. So it's mm -hmm. like, let's split off our part of the empire. <laughs> and that's basically what happened. And... Uh, the American Revolution certainly had, uh, everybody did get riled up and everybody was fighting for democracy, but it was really uh, stirred up and, and pushed from the top <laughs> by these people who wanted to split off financially from Britain and have their own empire. So um, we were a spinoff from Britain in the beginning, <clears throat> basically continuing the same things they were doing our own way. And uh, that, so we were rival. And basically, the United States and Britain were rivals uh, for most of the 19th century. <laughs> then, at the beginning of the 20th, well, yeah, beginning of the 20th century, oil was <laughs> just coming into its own as being everybody recognizing how important it was strategically. Right. And it was just before World War One mm -hmm. that Germany and Britain mm -hmm. started converting to steam warships and things. And then um, the airplane. Well, the airplane didn't play that much of a role. No, but it was coming, right? Yeah, it was just beginning. Mm -hmm. But um, oil was really, everybody realized that oil was going to be, who controlled oil was going to control the future. Mm -hmm. Germany realized this, and they were building a railway down to uh, Cairo, Baghdad, you know, the Baghdad-Berlin Railway. Right. With that, they would make their own deals in the Middle East for oil, ship it directly to Germany by train, plus they would have a trading network, um, you know, European, Middle Eastern, a whole trading network mm -hmm. into Eurasia based on railroad. Now, Germany had already surpassed Britain in terms of the industrialization. Oh, yeah, they so were amazing. In Germany, amazing. Britain was, and yet Britain was still recognized as the main power in the world, still had a lot of its empire. Um, its, its ships controlled World, you know, dominated world trade. Right. So Germany was threatening to eclipse them. And so, you know, the documents are there, and people in the British elite started saying, well, we, we have to have a war. Otherwise, uh, Germany is going to take over. So they basically created a set of alliances and engaged in provocations and uh, created a situation where uh, when something broke out in the Balkans, <clears throat> that all these countries were automatically by treaty pulled in to fight Germany. Um, now, America, well, it turns out uh, Britain didn't have enough funds to have prosecuted war. Um, and so they had arranged in advance through J.P. Morgan to get financing from the United States. Mm -hmm. So by the time the war was over, all of Europe, including Britain, and Germany, <laughs> and all the Allies, 
were totally in debt to J.P. Morgan. Yeah, now, this is J.P. Morgan as in Morgan Chase Manhattan, the whole banking system yeah. that still exists here in the, in the United States, right? Right. Of course. Okay. So he had been given exclusive rights to... Uh, I have a good friend. I have a good friend who's a v, who's a vice president for J.P. Morgan Chase. <laughs> well, maybe get some inside information. Yeah, I, I, and, he, and, and you know what? It's like being in the belly of the beast. He's one of the most miserable, sad people I know. You know, the stress machine. It's unreal. So, so at the end, so J.P. Morgan had been given uh, exclusive rights to uh, procure arms and supplies for the British war machine. So, besides Providing all the funding, <clears throat> which he, you know, brokered, he got money from all kinds of people, all kinds of other banks and stuff, and funneled it mm-hmm. to Britain and the Allies, and some say even funded some to Germany as well. Um, plus, he made all the money from all the procurements he was managing. You know, he, you know, the firm. Sure. Um, so at the end of World War One, in some sense, J.P. Morgan owned Europe, and. Uh, it was J.P. Morgan's agents at Versailles who decided mm-hmm. uh, how the reparations were going to be paid and who was going to owe how much and how it was going to be paid and all that. Uh, so really it was, it was those banking interests which set, which set up the whole right. economic collapse that followed World War One. All right. Well... <clears throat> Uh, and it goes on and on, uh, everybody. Yeah, yeah, it, we, could, we could talk about this forever. There are a right. couple of books um, uh, that actually... Richard, I know, recommends. There's one called The Breakdown of Nations um, and maybe A Century of War, uh, Anglo-American Oil Politics. That's a good one by... Um, who wrote that? Eng- Engdahl. Right? Well, the, the Century of War by Engdahl is excellent, excellent book um, to talk about how, how the geopolitics works today in oil and the special relationship between Britain and the United States. Excellent book, well documented. Um, Breakdown of Nations is really more a philosophical book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's... It's talking about the issue of scale right, right. Well, we'll, in, in society. Yeah, and and, and it we'll, makes a difference whether you have 100 million people or 10 million right, people, what right. kind of government you're going to have and, and how it's going to function. That's exactly right, and, we, and we'll, we'll get into that, I think, uh, a, a lot here as we get going. Richard, before, before that, though, before the top of the hour, I want to finish up this sort of this section about the sure. matrix, and I want to talk about the media, obviously. Uh, media as the definer of sort of the consensus reality. Maybe you could talk about media for a minute. Sure. Um, well, one thing, I mean, I just was in some dialogue with some people the last few days. Um, it's like what happens on television is our equivalent of our shared experience. It's like if we lived in a small town and a parade went down Main Street, then... What happened on Main Street, that would be what happened in the town that day. You know, mm-hmm. It sort of defines reality. So, um, for instance, you know, there's this 9-11 truth movement. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they've been, they have all these websites and all these uh, public meetings and all that, oh, okay. spreading the word about what happened. Now, and, you, and they keep complaining, a lot of them do, mm-hmm. keep complaining, well, why don't we break through to the media? Why won't the media cover this? <laughs> right. Now, and yet they take a poll, and now it's something like half of New Yorkers and 37% of Americans generally now believe that the government was involved in some way in 9-11. Mm-hmm. So to my way of thinking, the 9-11 truth movement has been very, very successful. They've gotten their word out to 
37% of the American people. Right. That's a huge fraction. So why do they think they haven't succeeded yet? Hmm. It's because they haven't seen it on TV. <laughs> it's like even for them, until they see it on TV, you know, like CNN. This report just in, we right. learned that Cheney was responsible for 9-11. Well, if that happened, then it was, oh, it's real now. It happened. Right. You know, now we know. No, it doesn't count. It's got to be on TV for it's real. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, and, and the revolution won't be televised, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> so. so that's one kind of way of looking at the media. It's like it, it, even if we don't want it to, even if, we, even if we don't believe anything on it, we still accept that what's there is kind of what happened on Main Street. It's kind of what's real. It's very strange, actually. It's what the American people have experienced together. I, I, I love Marshall McLuhan and some of the stuff that he wrote in the late 50s and the 60s about the media were just so far ahead of its time. And I think even McLuhan right now would be going, man, I can't believe what's actually happened, you know? Well, he's, that's the kind of observation I mean, that he would have made or maybe did make, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right, it's sort of the meta meaning of media. Right. It's not just the information that's presented, it's it's the experience that it the significance of the experience. Right. Amazing. All right, so uh so that's basically the story is that uh <laughs> things as we really are showing them for the most part aren't that way. And uh it's by design and it's controlled. The media, if you look who owns, you know, the major News networks, television networks, radio networks, all that stuff. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing web. Well, basically, you've got companies like General Electric and Westinghouse. Mm-hmm. Big companies whose main business is, say, selling defense. Right, it's warfare. Right. You know, or whatever, or, or you know, commercial products and you know, right. nuclear reactors. That's their main business. Mm-hmm. And they happen to own NBC or CBS. <laughs> and so, I mean, the media is... It's not that the media is influenced by corporations, or it's it's that the media is is, is the voice, right. is the propaganda channel of American wealthy elite. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, now that doesn't mean that that, that no, please don't uh, misunderstand. Like I'm saying that there's everybody in the media is part of a conspiracy. Of course, I mean the individual reporters are probably chafing at the bit to tell better stories and, and cover things in more depth. But the editorial policy in the spin is carefully mm-hmm. determined centrally. Mm-hmm. If you departed from that, you'd be fired in a day. Right, and there are plenty of stories of people who experience that. So, and A lot of times when you get some journalists now who are, say, depending on the web and stuff more, now suddenly they can let their hair down and tell mm-hmm. them how it is. Mm-hmm. Amazing. But when they're on, back when they had their anchor job or whatever, they couldn't. Right. Well, okay, uh, Richard, we're just about to the top of the hour here. Do me a favor. There's a wonderful quote, uh, a quote by uh, Francis Moore LaPay. Maybe you could read that quote, and um, and we could take a break after that, and we'll come back and talk about yeah. some more of this. Yeah, right? Now, before, I'm going to read the quote, but let me just say that the point here was when we were talking about how elites have always run civilization for the last 6,000 years, and they still do, mm-hmm. um, the conclusion I reached from that in the book is that uh, the only antidote to that is to actually create real democracy for the first time. Because <laughs> it's only time. us, real people who actually care that the world be run for our benefit and be run sensibly. And so the question then is going to be, how do we achieve real democracy? And um, Francis, Francis Moore LePay's quote is wonderful. I mean, it summarizes my whole book in a sense. Okay, here it goes. Yeah, please. We've lived so long 
under the spell of hierarchy, from god kings to feudal lords to party bosses, that only recently have we awakened to see not only that regular citizens have the capacity for self-governance, but without their engagement, our huge global crisis cannot be addressed. The changes needed for human society simply to survive, let alone thrive, are so profound that the only way we will move toward them is if we ourselves, regular citizens, feel meaningful ownership of solutions through direct engagement. Our problems are too big, interrelated, and pervasive to yield to directives from on high. And that comes from a, from an essay called Time for Progressives to Grow Up. <laughs> Good words there, Richard. We'll be back in just a minute, everybody. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, straight up midnight. And my guest is Richard K. Moore. If you're interested about uh, what we're talking about, you can find lots of information about Richard on the web at www. Uh, well, there are a couple ones, actually. Let's do the first one here, escapingthematrix.org. That's www.escapingthematrix.org. And also uh, on the web at CyberJournal, C-Y-B-E-R-J-O-U-R-N-A-L dot O-R-G. And CyberJournal, uh, uh, just a, an historical uh, archive of information and one of the one of the first news groups uh, talking about lots and lots of these issues um, a long, long time ago, before the web was really hip. So, anyway, uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes, okay? It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Let's play another song here uh, from Lizzie and Tony. This one is called, appropriately, I Pledge Allegiance to Myself. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Back in just a few.
Side, Lizzie West and the White Buffalo, I Pledge Allegiance to Myself. That's a title track from their recently released CD, and it's on Appleseed Records, by the way. Great stuff from Lizzie and Tony. Back here in Columbia soon, in a few days, and I look forward, as I said, to uh, to their return. So, All right, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's just after midnight, now on the 12th of September, 2006. Wow, another September 11th here and gone, and we're still with you. So that's good news, Richard. Yep. And uh, also with us is Richard K. Moore from his home in Wexford, Ireland. Let's continue, Richard. Uh, We've talked about some of our challenges. Uh, What do we do about it? I guess now maybe we talk about what things might look like if we've never seen one before. What would a real democratic society look like? Right. Well, what we have now, right now, everywhere, at every level of society, is hierarchy. Um, centralized, whatever kind of endeavor we do in life, we do it through a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. If you have a company, then it's got a CEO and a board of directors. If you've got a condominium uh, neighborhood, then you have a board of directors. Um, You know, PTA, Boy Scouts, if you have uh, a nation or a state or a province or whatever you have, it's always governed by a hierarchy. And even That's the family structure, the way they, the way it's sort of uh, propagandized to be set up. Well, you know, the, the traditional uh, male chauvinist, male-dominated family, whatever, yeah, it follows the hierarchical model. But okay. I think in the family you can find a lot more interesting things going on as well. No doubt. We'll get back to that. But um, basically hierarchy is our model of how to get things done. And, and, and for instance, let's say we had a public meeting and we decided we'd be right, let's do something, let's do something. Well, the first thing we do is appoint a committee then to follow through and make decisions. It's just, it's just how we know to do things. Right. Um, the problem with hierarchy, though, <clears throat> uh, especially when you get to, to society size, is that hierarchies are always, especially if they have power and money involved in them, always get end up being ruled by some clique, some elite group. Uh, it's just, why wouldn't, I mean, it's just so easy. Once there's a hierarchy, and, and if you are ambitious, then taking over the hierarchy is the easiest way to pursue your goals. So it always happens. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in the world you have a, <clears throat> well, there might be some exceptions to, you know, in the third world, but basically everywhere you go, some elite, either it's a, a communist party, or it's uh, capitalists, or it's bankers, or whoever, uh, manages to get control. So that's how hierarchies work. So even though one can get things done through hierarchies, they have the political disadvantage that you're always ruled by elites. So what we need is, how do we get away from hierarchy? Now, that's just not something you say, okay, let's get away from hierarchy, let's vote for it. No, we don't even know how. We have to learn how. We don't know how to govern ourselves. Um, Like, for instance, let's say, okay, now, from now on, you're going to have a town meeting and you get to govern your own town. Well... They could give us that freedom, and we'd have a big town meeting, and we'd have lots of arguments and debates, and the meeting would be going on late, people would start going home, and we'd end up having to choose somebody to run the city for us. So the problem about having democracy is that we, what it really is, it's self-governance. Democracy means self-governance. Self-governance. And we don't know how to do it. And and, And responsibility must be a big part of it then. Well, if you if we did learn how to self-govern ourselves, then obviously we would. If we weren't doing so responsibly, then it would be uh, wouldn't be working very well. Right, sort of what we have. Um, so, 
how do we learn to govern ourselves? Now, it turns out that there is, there are, there's some real uh, promising uh, results. Some, there's some promising things, technologies, you might say. Hmm. Um, although I hate that word in this case. They have to do with how we can learn to govern ourselves. And there's a lot of people working in this field. <clears throat> uh, but I always, there's one person I always pick out because uh, what he's doing is very understandable and works very well, and uh, he has a vision behind it. And that, that fellow is named Jim Ruff. Hmm. He lives in Port Townsend, Washington. And he worked in industry. He had a job as a consultant to try to get um, the workers and the management to work better together in this uh, factory. Mm-hmm. And he was there for several years, and he had a lot of freedom because the, the local people in the factory actually didn't even care if he was there. He was sent there by central management to try to get things working. Right. So what he would do is he'd meet with the workers, and he'd just let them talk, and they started developing a process of dialogue and a process of how they talked about things. And over a period of years, it developed into something really powerful, where these workers who, at the beginning of the process, weren't even motivated to come to work and uh, didn't have any identity, whatever, with the company. After a few years, they had made up. They'd come up with all kinds of efficiency improvements and mm-hmm. safety improvements, and uh, improved the morale and improved the productivity of the place, and all right. just based on on their uh, in intelligence and creativity of their of their discussions. So uh, later then, Jim uh, took this and, and developed it into a process he calls the Wisdom Council, or dynamic facilitation. His particular, there's lots of these facilitation methods, but his is, is, is one of the really good ones. And so what it's about is you, you get a group of people together, <clears throat> you, can, you know, say a dozen, that would be a good number, and they stick with it for, you know, a couple days to, or maybe four days, you know, so it's a long, it's like a, it's like a uh, convention, you might say, rather than just a, a meeting. <clears throat> and so this goes on for, you know, a reasonable period of time. And what the facilitator does is really just to help everybody hear each other. The facilitator doesn't have any agenda. There's no checklist of what to cover. And the, and the facilitator doesn't contribute any ideas. Mm-hmm. Their only role is to get people to hear each other and understand each other. And what happens uh, is there's an unfolding process where it starts out with debate and argument, and you know, like like all meetings do. Um, but then people start getting below that and hearing, well, here's a person I don't agree with them, but yeah, I can understand the problem they're having with their child and why they feel this way and and why they were raised in this religion and they, you know, I, I accept that they're a valid human being and I understand their concerns. So you get to the level where you're understanding each other's concerns, even if they don't agree with each other's conclusions. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Once you get to that point of, well, we are a group of people, we all are humans, we all have real concerns, how can we solve our problems together? Instead of competing for solutions, let's say, well, gee, how can we meet your need and meet your need? And, and what happens then is people start coming in with creative new ideas. Oh, we could do this and this, you know, or we could combine that idea with this idea. And you get into a collaborative problem-solving process where everybody is taken into account rather than a debate about my solution is better than your solution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a creative process coming up with new solutions. Now, if this were just theory, then it, you know, it, could, it wouldn't be very interesting, let's say. But um, they've used this Wisdom Council process many times now 
And every single time, it comes up with amazing results. It works. Um, for instance, they tried it once. Actually, this the case I'm going to mention now. It wasn't actually Jim Ruff, and it wasn't actually that particular process, but it was the same idea. Right. They got together people, some people who were uh, from the Christian coalition, some that were like liberal <clears throat> commentators, people that were in the weather underground in the 60s, um, um, a black women's group, somebody from the National Rifle Association. I mean, it was the right. people you think there was going to be a gun battle, you know, mm-hmm. they got together. But after a few days of going these, through these kind of processes of learning to really listen to each other, they came out with a big declaration at the end of, of we the people and how we have to revitalize democracy and we're all in this together. I mean, these people who were as far apart as they could be. Mm-hmm. And then they had other uh, cases of doing the wisdom council things, like in a community setting, like in uh, Oregon. They did one in Rogue Valley. And they had uh, just a few ordinary citizens that weren't particularly politically active or anything. And, but just over a period of um, three or four days of uh, these processes, they discovered they had all kinds of things in common, and they became more energized and more articulate. And they, mm. they started out, they looked kind of shy and had much to say. When the process was over, they all gave talks at a public meeting, and they were all like experienced public speakers with great energy behind their voice. And, uh, and they came out again with this feeling of we the people. So it's like when you're in a group of people and you realize that you can really understand each other and work together, then you suddenly realize, you know, people are competent. They are capable of working together and governing themselves. They, they get that feeling just just from being in a small group, and that, and that leads to this emotional uh, articulation of we the people. I mean, they came up with that phrase themselves. It was not part of the program you know, in both cases. You know, um, I'm, I'm thinking about group size, right? And I remember from Plato that he said something like... Uh, Fifty. I mean, this is sort of sort of arbitrary, but he he, he guessed that around fifty thousand people was the minimum governable size. In other words, below that, it became very difficult difficult to govern from above. Uh, <laughs> you know that that it, it it would sort of for good, bad, or ugly be, be a self governing sort of situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's how many eight thousand. He said fifty thousand. He said 50, he said fifty thousand right, was the minimum governable sort of size. So the, the science of elite control was already well developed mm-hmm, back there. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. You know. Um, well, speaking of going backwards, though, let's do that a little bit more. I know I know you're familiar with the work of Rian Eisler. Yeah, and uh, she talks a lot about partnership and about you know. It seems to me that what you're talking to here in the last 15 minutes or so is relationship. In other words, the way that people blossom or whatever and come up with these creative ways to solve problems and things begins with relationship, though. They have to establish trust and, and, and start to get to know one another. Well, and, and relationship within dialogue. Mm. It's really all about dialogue. Um, I mean, that's how you do things with other people is you dialogue with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we... What becomes clear from these kind of experiences I was talking about with listening councils and facilitation, facilitated dialogue, is that with the help of that, we can learn to govern ourselves. And the so what the, I think kind of the topic of this segment I think is kind of what would a democratic society look like, right? right? 
Um, so what I've done in the book and what we can do right now is, is extrapolate a little, bit, a little bit. Let's say that you have a community. Um, I don't know, let's say it's 50,000, whatever. And let's say that you started having these wisdom councils on a regular basis. So each one is randomly selected people from the community. They go through a process where they talk about what's going on in the community, and, uh, and because of how this process works, they are very likely to come up with uh, some creative ideas or uh, you know, proposals for what the community could do. Now, let's say these are published in the local paper, you know, and people talk about them. Now, what's promising here is that if the randomly selected group of people includes kind of uh, most of the, you know, it's representative of the various concerns and interests and different groups in the community, and if they are able to come up with things that they all agree to, then it's very likely that those proposals are going to make sense mm-hmm. to the rest of the community. There, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, I go up, go for that. So if you had these kind of things happening, say, every few weeks or something, each one with only about 12 different people pulled in, then you can see where the discussion and the kind of proposals would tend to converge uh, toward something that the whole community could uh, say, yeah, we, that's us, we want to do that. You know, that's how I feel. So it's an iterative process of dialogue. And it could involve things like big, big town meetings, but those it doesn't seem to work as well in a large setting. But by an iterative process and by everybody being involved eventually, you could see how the community could develop a sense of itself, a sense of what its agenda was, what its priorities were, and how it can move forward and solve its problems and govern itself. So um, I developed those ideas a lot more carefully in, uh, in the book. But where I end up with is the hypothesis that if a community were left to itself and if it had, if it had the right kind of dialogue processes, it would become a self-governing, it could become a self-governing democratic city, like a little city-state, you might say. Um, and actually be democratic, not be controlled by elites, not need to have a mayor. I mean, you, you could have city offices like fire departments and police and administration and utilities, but the decisions in the community would be made on this basis of community dialogue. And there wouldn't be any delegation of power to any elected officials right. at the local level. Um and I'm convinced that that could work. And actually, my next project after uh, how the book is published is to go out around and work with, talk to different communities, and, and see if some an experiment like this could could be made. I know there's a lot of other people, like Jim Ruff himself, who would be very supportive of such a thing. And if it could actually be demonstrated, then that would be uh, very important, I think, in the development of a democratic society. So let's. This is something we might want to come back to with some call-in questions and stuff because it's an important issue. Could this work in a community? But for right now, let's just assume, okay, let's say it were possible for communities to become self-governing if they were given the freedom to do so. Mm-hmm. Then how from that could you actually create a larger society, have a larger society, and have it still be democratic? Mm-hmm. And um, so the ideas I developed there are, well, let's just start with the assumption first-order approximation that every town, every community, is sovereign. It runs its own affairs, period. 
I know there's questions. What if it started polluting the streams, or what if it was enslaving women, or whatever? Um, there are things like that that can't be ignored. But, but, if, but what we were saying is that each of these communities is run by an inclusive democratic process. So you're not going to get anybody exploited because everybody participates. Right. And if two neighboring communities have a, uh, issues between over who controls the lake or the water supplies or what kind of fertilizer that it's allowed to be used, then they would naturally get together by the, you know, send delegations and use this same process to work out uh, amicably and to everybody's benefit how to deal with the shared resources. I mean, that's how they would be doing their things every day in their own community. Why wouldn't they use the same approach in dealing with each other? Hmm. So basically, it seems to me that if every community could be democratically self-governed, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be rocket science then for them to collaborate and work together and there could be regional, regional conferences where every community sends a delegation and, and again, always working to, you, you could use the word consensus, but, uh, the kind of process I'm talking about are really stronger than consensus. It's not just, Agreeing, not agreeing to go in for some proposal. It's actually being excited about the creative proposals you come up with. Hmm. So it's a more positive, stronger thing than just consensus. Uh, consensus just means that nobody vetoes. Right. Um, so I could see a glow- once you once you achieve this marvelous thing of self-governing democratic communities. Once you achieve that, and I think the problem of that, building a democratic global society. Sort of on a networking, uh, have, you know, there'd be powwows just like the Indians used to have. Everybody right. gathers in Kansas for a national powwow and, you know, and <clears throat> they have series of, uh, facilitated sessions with different groups of people and, you know, sort of come up with, uh, how to deal with national issues. All, and of course, all the decisions would have to be go back and be ratified by every community. So you still wouldn't be delegating. Just because you have a central powwow doesn't mean You've delegated to the central government. It's just there's a place for everybody to dialogue. Right, and share ideas. Go back to the communities and affirm that, yeah, we can go along with this. And if if new problems came up, well, then you have another power. With the new issues brought in. Hmm. Um, So I think those kinds of processes could lead to a global democratic society. uh, I go into a lot of detail about how how do you do the law of the sea, how do you, you know, da 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 da. All of that stuff can be done. Well, Richard, um, I'm I'm peeking in the chat room right now, right? And okay. and there are a few people in there that are uh, discussing and talking and listening. And a gentleman just puts up a note. He says, "Could we use the Iroquois Indians' governing method? Grandmothers make the final rule." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not a bad one. Well, no, I think the Iroquois and a lot of the American Indians um, groups, uh, the Sioux Nation. Mm have a hell of a lot to teach us about Absolutely. democratic society. Now, in, in the Sioux Nation in particular, there was something very interesting happened on a historical basis. Um, if you look back in the Middle East and the first civilizations and stuff, you had these warrior tribes coming in from the steppes of um, Central Asia who ended up conquering the early uh, agricultural societies in the Middle East. And that's really how our civilization started and became hierarchical. Now, in this, these warrior cultures, they would uh, fight each other for territory. And this is what happened. The American Indians, you know, the, the different uh, Plains Indians, you know, they were always fighting with each other and, and over territory, and there was sort of a cycle of wars. 
I mean, there weren't like model. There wasn't conquest and annihilation. There were more border skirmishes. Mm-hmm. And they were always moving. But they did something that, that I don't think happened in other parts of the world. And this was uh, not that long before the white man came. I think um, they got together and they figured out a way to stop having wars. Mm-hmm. And so the Sioux Nation um, included a lot of tribes which would have been fighting, but instead they worked out how we're going to get together and have powwows when we need to, and not fight anymore. So they had made this transition from kind of the warrior tribal cultures um, to a, feder- a federation um, which involved dialogue and avoided warfare and did not have any central government. There was no, there was no central uh, chief of all the Sioux Nation. Each Sioux Nation was that it was self-governing. Mm-hmm. But they had this place where they got together and had powwows periodically and came up with common strategies, like if they had to fight the European invaders or, or, or just to maintain their own harmony. So they uh, pointed the way, and they've gone quite a ways in the evolutionary path toward a real democratic, a large democratic society. But they weren't agriculture. They weren't comparable to the problems an agriculture society has. But still, in terms of structure... They have a lot to teach us. Right. And now, the, the actual formalism of saying that, that grandmothers make the decision, right. I don't, we don't need that. I think grandmothers might be some of the wisest people in these dialogues. <laughs> right, and their words should be listened to and, and, and be a part of the mix, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Well... Was there any more yeah, interesting yeah. comments well, from the well, chapter? Well, there, well, there are, and, and I mean, I'm I, I'm just sort of, you know, th- thinking about this. You know, we call them savages. In other words, the matrix representation of this is savages. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've read a lot of stuff about Native Americans, and a couple of the books I read were about, were, they were written by um, Europeans who had been, lived with the, lived in a tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they just have chose to live in the tribe. A man would marry a Native American woman, they'd have children, he'd live there, and then he'd write about it, what it was like. Right. There was another case where actually a, European woman was abducted <laughs> to become the wife of a chief, and uh, but then she wrote about it afterwards. And and what we find, and also from uh, just anthropological studies, is these were very you know wise, civilized in the sense of you know, civilized people, you know, societies, very enlightened ways of raising and educating children. Uh, honor was just. Uh, Honor was something that, um, an integrity, was an important part of the ethic. Right, and, and, and oral No tradition. one wanted to lose their honor. And your word. I mean, this was the thing. It was about language, and, and, very, and they didn't, re- you know, this is an oral tradition, not, not a written tradition, primarily. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't have written languages at first. Um, I mean, when, the, when Europeans came. Right. And um, they, these societies, well, of course, most all early societies... Uh, very much had an ethic of being one with nature, part of nature, one of the players in nature, um, uh, a steward of nature even. Right, right. So like when they would they would kill what they needed, mm-hmm. what they could use, and they would respect it. Like, you know, they, there was a ritual where they would sure? kill a buffalo and then they would take part of the buffalo blood and bury it in the soil to return his soul to the earth. And right. Uh, right. they would say a prayer or thank you to the, to the buffalo or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a respect for nature, 
and the respect for each other, respect for honor. Um, they were egalitarian. Everybody participated in decision-making. So these were far from savages. <laughs> it's the Europeans with their cannons and their conquests were the savages. Right, and they even wrote about how easy it would be to, 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 uh, to dominate and destroy these people. You know, when, well, when Columbus first arrived in the Caribbean, <clears throat> um, his, you know, they wrote, they said, geez, these people, they're so sweet and innocent, and um, they don't have any weapons. Geez, it was one regiment of people who could control the whole place. And right. that's exactly what they did. Absolutely amazing. Um, the only problem was is that the Native, Ameri the Native Americans weren't very good, couldn't be turned into slaves. Mm. Um, they would try to make slaves out of them, da da da, but they, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't work. They'd always rebel or whatever. Uh, be like trying to make a pet out of a gazelle, because they were free people, and so to have slaves, they had to bring them in from Africa, where they, where people had an agricultural society had to, had to become domesticated, as it were, no longer free, so that they were enslavable. Mm -hmm. The Native Americans, they basically had to kill off because they couldn't turn them into slaves. Amazing. All right, look, uh, Richard, let's come back and we'll talk. We, we, there's some questions that are popping up about peak oil. Uh, I want to talk with you a little bit more about prehistory and examples from Minoan Crete and other places that, uh, uh, that we know may have had different setups as far as the way uh, they govern themselves and their societies. Uh, so, so let's talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, all right? All right, everybody, we'll come back in just a few. Uh, it's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. It's KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. We're also streaming live via CosmicWavesRadio.com on the web uh, at www.MikeHagan.com. And always check out KOPN and help us out if you can at KOPN.org. All right, it's just about 12.30, now the 12th of September, 2006. We've got Richard K. Moore on the line with us from his place in Ireland, and we'll be back with him in just a few minutes, and we'll talk for another hour and a half with Richard about uh, the situation we're in and how we might help ourselves find a way out of it, okay? This one is called Looking for Leonard Cohen, Part 1, Lizzie West and the White Buffalo. Looking for Leonard Cohen, Part 1. Maybe they fought last night But they're together now Maybe they're not that nice But they'll be nice now I remember the position that I was once in And I wish I could be there now Oh, how I wish I could be there now I went and hit the wine Still you worked your way through the fences You went and took the wine You took the wine You didn't see me sitting by the cases The garden grin and smoking hands My tan pants and my polished helmet This crumpled map of all my plans I remember the position I was once in I wish I could be there now 
That's one more from Lizzie West and Tony Caraldo from their CD, I Pledge Allegiance to Myself. It's Mike, you listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My guest is and has been Richard K. Moore. He's on the line with us from his home in Wexford, Ireland. If you're interested in information about Richard and the work and uh, research that he's done over many years, you can check him out on the web at www.cyberjournal.org and also at escapingthematrix.org. And um, we're talking about his book and just sort of uh, lots of things in general. So, hi, Richard. All right. All right, so uh, before the break, some questions. Uh, certainly people very interested about self-governance and the whole I- idea and how we might accomplish it. Uh, but questions showing up about peak oil, property ownership, uh, uh, you know... Um, I mean, that's a concern, I think, of all of us, myself included. I mean, I I, I consider myself you know, a steward, certainly, of the land that I 
live on and that I share with the other creatures that live there. But I certainly, you know, in, in, a, in a way, consider it mine. But anyway, there's all this stuff coming up, Richard. So where do we start? Maybe peak oil is a good well, place I think, to start. I think property, well, or wherever, up, up to you. Let's go on with the property and then get back to peak oil. Yeah, please. It's a very good question because I think property and economics are totally woven in with governance and with uh, how society works. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, if let's say some community was one of these democratic self-governing communities, and let's say the local forest was owned by uh, a logging company, and um, the local water, you know, and then some um, factory down the upstream had water rights to the stream, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if, if the community doesn't control its own economy and its own resources, then to say it's self-governing means nothing. Right. Self-governing means, means, number one, you have the right to make the decisions for your society, your community. And number two, that you have control over the resources and land and stuff in your society. You have to have both. Uh, you know, they go together. So, <clears throat> it's, my feeling is is that if if you want to if you want to say we have a sovereign, self-governing community, then it has to, the community has to have control of let's say all the land and whatever and forests and everything else in the community. Now, the question of private ownership within that is really, it's a question of, uh, it's a democratic question to be decided, and it's a cultural issue, really. So, for instance, um, if, if we're talking about Montana, <laughs> you know, and all the people in Montana, you know, in their, let's say their local town, governing themselves, well, then by golly, you know, they're going to have independent farms and businesses as the basis of their society. That's their culture. That's that's how they think things should work. That's they like having their their ranches and whatever. Um, and so, the, why would that change? Um, it might turn out though that there was one landowner locally who was uh, abusing people that are gone, and maybe there would be he would be um, talked into um, changing his practices to you know to better serve the community. But it's not going to turn into a communist town just because it becomes democratic. Right, right, okay. On the other hand, if you go down into Chiapas, let's say, in, in Mexico, or, right. or to a large extent, you still have communal farming as the local culture. And, um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm not an expert on that, but I, I think this applies to them. And so the way they do things is they all go out and work together in the fields, and in the harvest time, they all go out and harvest and, and help. Uh, deal with the corn and the wheat or whatever there it is they grow and put it in storehouses and then they uh, share it among the families on some basis. Well, if that's how they want to do things, and, and uh, they might say, okay, well, the fields are owned by everybody, to the, you know, owned by the community. And we decide together, you know, what we're going to plant. Well, if that's how they want to run things, fine. It's a democratic decision. Right. And so how property would be treated uh, in that kind of a society versus Montana versus New York versus uh, Oregon, you know. Right, because everything is... I mean, it would be different in, different in each case. Right, there are geographic uh, considerations. I mean, is it a city? Is it rural? Is it, it, it There are cultural considerations, all these things. The, the bottom line is people contribute and they decide for themselves as a group. Yeah. Now, one thing, though, just from a systems point of view, um, is that 
<clears throat> I mean, like I said, you have total freedom democratically to decide how to run things. But there's one thing which I think would almost have to be like a, a rule. <laughs> I think I'm not saying I would make a rule, but that I think people would realize it is that you can't allow anybody outside the community to own property in the community. <laughs> you can't have absentee landlords. Right. Um, because you start having absentee landlords, uh, then land becomes a commodity. Uh, it gets bought up by people who are able to accumulate wealth, and the community doesn't really govern itself anymore. Right. So it would almost be, if there was going to be a constitution, it would be like one of the things you would need to have, and not for economic reasons, but for political reasons, is nobody outside of the community can own anything inside the community. That's mm. part of sovereignty. And it used to be, for instance, that if you were an American, you couldn't buy land in Mexico. I think you probably can now, but anyway, that was a, an attempt to preserve Mexico from being bought up by the gringos. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it didn't work very well, but, you know, that was the sense behind it. And uh, similarly, I think that would, needs to be, if you want to maintain democracy into the future, each community has to have control over all everything in it. That means there's no government buildings there, because there's no government help telling it what to do. Um, there's no international banks or corporations with their own land there. There's a, you know, it's, everything's owned by the community. All right. Let's see. Uh, going back to questions here, Richard, that, that are relevant, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, a lot of questions here about Crete. Uh, Minoan Crete is an interesting culture. Has RKM read any of Kazantzaki's writing? Uh, does K over romanticize the Cretans? I I went to Crete and I spent a day at Kenosis, hmm. and uh, I was just blown away. There was all these beautiful frescoes, and um, you know it was a very well preserved place. Right. This is a thousand years, fifteen hundred years before the Roman Empire. Yeah, pl please uh, uh, for the people who aren't familiar, and, and, a little background. The, yeah, I mean it turns out there. There were no scenes of warfare. Nobody with shields and spears. It was all like people partying, <laughs> dolphins, frolicking, um, people dancing. Um, I mean, it was just, it wasn't a warrior culture. Uh, and it was so different. If you go to Rome or Greece or, you know, all those places, most of the of what you see is about war and conquest, right. people being trampled underfoot. And ever since. Great heroes and and it was, the, Crete just wasn't like that. It's like, gee, I wish I could have been there. That looks like the great party. <laughs> right. And, and, and again, um, let's clarify when this occurred historically. Well, this, like I said, this was 3,500, wait, 3,500 years ago, 1500 BC, I think. Okay. It was when, uh, it was destroyed by a, some kind of earthquake or something. Um, and covered in dust, so it was perfectly preserved. Right, that was the whole Pompeii incident, right, with the volcano. Oh, no, this was... A different story. No, okay. It, that was a local event. All right, all right. Um, so, it was a long time ago. It was, um, it's, it's credited, it's called the first European civilization, Crete, you know, the Minoan civilization. And the particular throne room, which is still the throne that they had, uh, they copied that in the European Commission or something. It's the same throne, you know, so carry on the tradition. Well, um, so this society, it didn't seem to be warlike. And um, 
it seemed to be women were they were right there at the equal roles. The queen was just as important as the king. Uh-huh. They were still they were a hierarchy. I mean, they did have a king and a queen. Um, I'm not saying I don't think it was a model democracy, but it was a society which was more harmonious and more what like what Rian Eisler calls a partnership culture. Right, not not dominated, dominated not dominated by by either sex, or or by king who had absolute power, okay. or queen. Um, so it, what it what Rian Eisler writes about, and there's controversy in whether she exaggerated something, but I think based on the evidence she presents, I think she based her basic thesis is a good one, and that is that when agriculture came along, there were two different paths that that were followed, could be followed. The one that we see in the Middle East, and I think it had to do with conquest from these uh, plains horsemen, you know, hmm. it was a hierarchical approach, or a dominator approach. Right. And there you had a, a ruling tribe or a ruling clique with a lot of the other people enslaved. <clears throat> and the basis of agriculture then was having the slaves work the land, and the uh, ruling tribe or the ruling elite control, you know, then keep control of the storehouses and dole out the food as the way they want. And that allowed them then, they had the excess wealth, that they could have full-time soldiers. They could have armies. See, early societies couldn't have armies, you know, because everybody had to go till the fields in between or, you know, or hunter-gatherer in between. So war was always a part-time activity. But once you had these hierarchical civilizations, they could have armies and they could conquer each other. Mm. And so what you, if you excavate one of these old cities in Mesopotamia, you always find a city buried under a city, buried under a city, buried under a city. Because the city would be there for a while, and then there would be a conquest, and it would get destroyed. Then it would be rebuilt. Then they would conquer somewhere else, and it would get destroyed. And so you see these cities being rebuilt time after time through the thousands of years. Sort of like Lebanon, sort of like Baghdad. <laughs> yeah, that's the modern, that's what's happening today. Right? It's still going on. Whereas... Uh, Civilizations more like Creed, and, and there were, Ian Eisler talks about these happening in, more in Europe, more north and west from the Middle East. And there you had, you also developed agriculture. You also had cities, you know, dense populations, with, uh, you know, organized societies. These weren't tribes or primitive. These, these were civil, early civilizations. And there you see cities where the cities, same city stood for several thousand years. I think she said 5,000 years. Right, right. It was amazing. Without a warfare, without being broken down and rebuilt. It was, you, you had a more stable society, more like what we saw in the frescoes in Crete, um, with, without the dominator culture. And she calls those a partnership culture. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know exactly how they were governed. I'm not saying they were perfect democracies. Right. But they were a different approach to civilization than was than the dominant one that eventually went out. And it involved not having warfare. It involved uh, civic harmony. It involved uh, men and women sort of having equal roles. And again... You know uh, that much from archaeological records. Right. And, and, and like you mentioned, the frescoes and the artwork, and it's, it's very pleasing. It's not uh, at all... You don't see depictions of warfare, uh, for the most part. I mean, at all, really. So no. we can learn from that. It's like people talk about human nature and say, well, after all, people are competitive and that's just how it works. And 
let's just hope our bad guys are stronger than their bad right, guys. Right, right, right. And let's make the most of it. But what these other alternative uh, kinds of civilizations show us is that uh, people, uh, human nature is variable. People can live in a harmonious society and they can live in a competitive society. It doesn't mean human nature is competitive. Mm-hmm. It means that's one of the possibilities. Right, right. Um, and what we what we learn from what Ryan Iser publicizes is that it's possible. It has been possible. It did happen that there were complex societies with dense populations and an organ. Sophisticated organization and division of labor. I am running that, water, you know. Or... All of that stuff, and it, and it was run harmoniously on a more of a partnership, co uh, mutual benefit basis rather than on somebody telling us what to do basis. Mm-hmm. So that's very hopeful. It says something about what human nature is capable of. Right, right. But we don't actually know how those societies were governed or what their decision process was because that kind of stuff doesn't survive. Right, right. Um, but it's an existence proof for a, for, a, for a real civilization. Right. Okay. So. Okay. Where are we now? Where All right. We well, we're we're back to the back to the present, and we're talking about. I I think I think we're sort of moving towards smaller community-based uh, ideas, and it seems that people that are are making comments about the fact that it seems like we're actually being pushed in that direction, whether we like it or not. And peak oil, I guess, is a part of that. I don't know. What, 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 do you see circumstances sort of forcing us uh, into a situation where we're going to have to get, you know, more organized um, as smaller groups? Well, yeah, yes, yes, on many dimensions. Um, I mean, there's peak oil, there's global warming, there's ozone layer, there's um, increasing <laughs> hurricanes. I mean, it's very obvious. Um, uh, lots and lots of evidence that um, the world, the civilization is, and humanity are reaching a crisis of, of dimensions of which have never been reached before. Um, and basically, this is, we're at the crescendo, we're at the climax of this whole hierarchical civilization process. We're finally, we're having getting toward where one nation or one government is like on the verge of controlling the whole world. And we can see that as, you know, like... Or at least try. What the United States is doing. And right. It's manipulating the UN into becoming a world government and all that stuff. Right, but, but I mean, but I don't see them being very successful, quite frankly. I mean... Well, they are. I mean, um, they are proceeding with their program. They have no intention of changing it, and it's it's going toward basically a world dictatorship, um, you know, with the Patriot Acts, with uh, unilateral uh, wars that the United States is starting, um, grabbing the last oil supplies. I mean, there's a confrontation setting up. Basically, the real confrontation in the world right now is between China and Russia on the one hand, and the United States and Britain on the other, with the EU kind of uh, swinging in between. And that's where all of this is leading. So we're we're heading toward um, basically a one-world hierarchy. But at the same time... hierarchy has been growing and growing for the last 6,000 years. And finally we've reached the point where everything's on a global scale, and globalization is part of that process. And um, at the same time as we're finally having one-world hierarchy, uh, we're also running out of resources... (laughs) 
destroying the environment, and it's all happening at once. We're being faced by a political crisis, a military crisis, an uh, environmental crisis, uh, running out of fuel crisis, kind of all coming together in the same century, in the same few decades. And all of us know that one way or the other. I mean, there isn't anybody on the earth who doesn't have some sense of foreboding, even if they have a totally different political analysis than we're talking about. They might blame it on Satan acting through liberals, but, you know, they still see a crisis. You know. um, so that's forcing all of us to start thinking, what can we do, what can we do, you know? Um and, gee, over the last 10, 15 years, there's a whole library of literature that's been generated about sustainability and appropriate technology and new kinds of economics. And, you know, there's one book that's uh, The Case Against the Global Economy and for a Turn Toward the Local. Um, so we're all searching for new models. It's like become an emergency. <laughs> I mean, 100 years ago, you might have people saying, oh, we should have a better society. Let's get out there and have a movement. Um, but it wasn't a crisis. It was just a hope to make things better. Now it's actually an emergency. If we don't do something, we're going to have mass die-offs. Um, and we're already having mass die-offs. In, in Africa, what is it, 6 million children a year mm. die from starvation and preventable diseases. You know, I'll, I'll tell you something about the matrix, Richard, between you and me, okay? and whoever else happens to be listening. And this is a total left turn, but I'm just going to share it with you real quick. And it was, it was a real uh, realization for me about the reality of the matrix, right? Um, I've been very interested in the medicinal qualities of silver for a long time, for my own personal reasons, okay? And, and just trust me, it's interesting. It's something that people need to know about. There, there was a paper that came out in October of 2005 and it was a peer-reviewed paper It's a uh, that, that came out from uh, a doctor whose name is Yakaman, who's a, uh, a nanotechnology expert and a, uh, a doctor of uh, engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. And it was a, a study that, that was um, in cooperation with uh, the University of Mexico. And uh, I like to read it on the air because I, I think it upsets people when I do it. So... Um, so, so listen to this and then I'll tell you a quick story about what happened this is uh, uh, October 18, 2005 in a groundbreaking study the Journal of Nanotechnology has published a study that found silver nanoparticles kills HIV-1 and is likely to kill virtually any other virus the study which was conducted by the University of Texas and Mexico University is the first medical study to ever explore the benefits of silver nanoparticles according to physorg.com. Anyway, this goes on and on and on, and um, I have a copy of the actual paper, you know what I mean? And, and I've approached all kinds of people, uh, AIDS experts. I've hung out at the so-called international AIDS conferences, you know, uh, online, where they have forums and chat rooms, and, uh, and I've shared this information with everybody. And I've said, hey, it's been a year and a half since this study came out, and I've never heard a word about it. How come? Right? And, um, just, I, I, and, and to this day, nothing from anyone. And, it also, and, and it's also been shown to be effective against malaria. This is a, an amazing thing, actually, uh, that, that, that's in the congressional record, as a matter of fact, the U.S. congressional record. So, so you're kind of what you're saying is there are 
medical solutions that aren't being deployed. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, even, and, if, even, if, and even if the silver one wasn't true, right, there's even if still that's lots true. of other examples. Right, and I would actually say that things like the uh, the international organization for AIDS or whatever, you know, you name it, they're theater. They are theater. And in fact, the big conferences where everybody goes to Amsterdam or whatever, it's theater. And Well, the I, th I think you're right. But the thing is, um, there are e simpler cases to be made. I mean, um, for instance, if you read Globalization, well, Globalization of Poverty by Shostakovsky. Hmm. Is a classic work that everybody should know about. He's really talking about the globalization process and what it means economically and politically in the third world. And what's happened all over, all over Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, whatever, is that um, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, um, which are basically run by the United States and Britain bankers, um, have systematically destroyed the economies in places like Rwanda, you know, throughout Africa. Systematically destroyed them by their policies they force on the, the indebtedness that they force on these countries. Right, look at the Congo. Look what's so happening at the Democratic Republic of Congo, right? The yeah, most so, I mean, it's... And then when the economy is destroyed, then people start starving. Mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, the CIA and other Israeli intelligence, and other, they go in and they provide arms and they stir up conflict so that the the starvation and the civil wars going on in Africa uh, are intentionally set up mm -hmm. by, you know, the United States, basically. And scarcity uh, is then manufactured, basically. Well, it's, it's a genocide program is what it is. And it's working. I mean, it, it's, it's six million people a year, that's took Hitler longer than one year to kill that many. I mean, it's a holocaust. It's intentional. Um, and what we hear about is we see an ad on TV and it says, oh, oh, send send $2 a month to so-and-so. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, something's being done. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, and most of those organizations are FOS. Well, even if, even if they're legitimate, even if they send some funds over to Africa, they're not. They cannot undo the damage that's being done by the international banking community. Mm. Um, and, you know, the people who run the world, who run the United States, who run Britain, um, who run Europe. So um, we're in the midst of a Holocaust, uh, a program of population reduction, uh, and that's the elite's answer to peak oil. Part of that answer is also nuclear war. It's a great way to get rid of a lot of people quickly. So their their answer to peak oil and overpopulation is, oh well, let's reduce population back down and uh, start another growth cycle. So it's not that they don't have a response to peak oil; it's just not a response that the rest of us want to know about. <laughs> Well, all right. Well, look, uh, it's a top of the hour here, Richard. We're going to take another break, okay? And we'll come back and uh, talk some more with Richard K. Moore. Uh, very interesting stuff, as always. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Like I said, just 1 a.m. on now the 12th of September, 2006. And we'll be back in just a minute, okay? We'll play another song here from Lizzie. And also, uh, for people out there listening on the web or locally, uh, hop on the web 
I mean, go over to the chat page, and I encourage um, um, all my guests as well. If you're, uh, you know, if you're uh, around a computer, hop on the chat page. There are plenty of people there that would like to um, uh, talk and uh, have questions and comments and everything. So everybody's welcome to do that. If you want to, just hop on the web, MikeHagan.com. Uh, scroll down a little bit, you'll find a link that says uh, Live Chat, and it's just under uh, Richard's information. And, of course, Richard K. Moore, we should mention his website one more time. A couple of them, uh, actually. EscapingTheMatrix.org and CyberJournal.org. All right, both of those sites can be linked from my site at MikeHagan.com from here on out. Okay? All right, as I said, it's Mike, and uh, let's see. This is, uh, I wasn't going to play this tonight, but I'll play it anyway. God damn that man.
go and do it again. Oh! Oh! Lizzie, I love it. All right, it's Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, just a little bit after 1 a.m. in the morning. And we're keeping things lively here with Richard K. Moore. And right back to Richard. Uh, and, Richard, let me give out the web- website uh, one more time here since we're at the top of the hour. It's www.cyberjournal.org and also escapingthematrix.org. All right, uh, how are you? Thanks for sticking around. Good. It's, it's early morning, though. The sun's up and everything now, right? I don't know. My curtains are closed. <laughs> I'm right. in my virtual world. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Richard, uh, for you know for getting up early and sticking around and doing this whole thing. Oh, Mike, great. Mike, I really thank you again. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you and uh, very interesting discussion. I think. Yeah, it's nice to have the time. Yeah, it's nice to have the time. You know, where you can actually sort of oh, not not try to squeeze it into ten minutes. So frustrating. <laughs> what's uh, what's been the response uh, to the book? Um. Very positive. Um, I mean, because I don't have a publisher and because we can't stock bookstores with it, um, the actual sales so far have not been tremendous, you know. Right. We're selling maybe three or four a day, kind of thing. But um, the, the people who have seen it, um, and, you know, like uh, uh, Elizabeth Satoris, for instance. Hmm. I'm sure a lot of you know about it. Right. Visionary woman, written lots of really good things. Um, I sent her a copy, and she immediately ordered more for her friends and put it on a reading list in one of her seminars. Um, so when when someone like that has that kind of a response, then, and, and she's not the only one, there's lots of others, um, then to me that says, okay, the book itself uh, has legs. I mean, it's going to go by word of mouth. Right. It, it's it's it, there's a, a need out there that it that it's responding to. And you've built a, a tremendous um, so it's, network. But it's a gradual process for right. word of mouth to build up. And well, in this kind of an interview like this helps a lot. Right, and you know, uh, you, without without a publishing company, you can't really do mass promotion. Right, but Richard, you know, over the years, you've done a great job of just building your own network. You know, of of people and friends. I mean, really, that's what it is, sort of extended family almost, about, you know, the people who you correspond with and who read your writings. And then, you, you know, uh, for people out there who aren't that familiar with Richard, this book that we're talking about, Escaping the Matrix, for many months, uh, Richard uh, shared uh, his writings with us chapter after chapter and, and then asked uh, for people to you know, give him their input and what they thought about what he had written so far. And so uh, it, it really was, uh, in other words, you, you, one of the reasons why I like you so much, Richard, is because you walk the walk. I mean, you really are trying to, you know, do this as a collaborative effort, even though, even though the book has your name on the bottom of it. I know you acknowledge a whole lot of people that have helped you with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would just, each time I wrote a chapter, I just published on the email list. Right. It was amazing. And... Um you know, people would write back. You know, there'd be discussions like we're having now, and, and those would then, uh, you know, I learned from that. And you know, I would change the next version; it would be different. Mm-hmm. Also, just I'd find out that what I said wasn't clear, and and, mm-hmm. and then I would clarify it. And and then, like one, a couple people took on the job of uh, doing the proofreading. They'd send me back corrected copies, and then and then another person uh, put in hours and hours looking up all the quotes I was using to make sure I got them right and, mm. and find an original source for them. Because right. a lot of times I, 
I would get them, paste them off of somebody's email message, you know. Right. Oh, that's a good quote. Uh, and, right. and then he would find it and find out that it wasn't quite right. And, you know, so it really was collaborative. And a lot of people put in a lot of time. Um, so, um, that whole, for me, the internet has been a, like a collaborative academy. Um, very exciting. Well, I think, I think that's actually a great little segue into, uh, our furthering our discussion about how do we get there from here. And mm-hmm. we, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, what we envision, what would be nice as opposed to what we've got maybe. And we've showed that, you know, there are historical precedents. Uh, even though we don't know all the details, it looks like human beings aren't necessarily this way or that way. We act differently depending on our own particular circumstances. So, um, technology, the web, what has that done to our chances to uh, to govern ourselves and, 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 and to empower ourselves? You know, I mean, Richard, you and me are here. We're talking. I mean, they, you know, as much as control as they'd like to have or like or, or like to create the illusion that they have we're on the air we're streaming live right now to the rest of the world you know and i'm here by myself in a in a studio and you know and, I'm, and, well, my, door, and my door is open as a matter of fact well so. there's there's sort of two things you can say about that um one of the things it means is that they're still controlling us they still run society they still make the decisions and yet we have all this freedom hmm. um I think what that means is that freedom has nothing to do with democracy. I mean, freedom is a result of democracy, but you can have freedom without democracy. Mm. Freedom means nothing. Mm. So, so, so all of us don't like Bush, so we all understand 9-11. What good does it do us when it comes time to vote? Either Bush gets in anyway because of diebold voting machines, <laughs> or they put somebody else in who sounds better, but we end up having the same wars and the same generals and the same Pentagon and the same CIA. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, freedom of speech and all that and marching in the street, that doesn't give us democracy. They found that ways to control us, even though that we can run around and be free. As long as we don't um, get too free. Now, the Internet, um, I, it's, it's a metaphor, kind of. But what I've been observing is the inter- Internet has, is an evolving intelligence. Now, of course, I'm not saying the Internet itself is some kind of an artificial intelligence thing. But, I mean, its role in communication has created a greater level of intelligence. For instance, when I first started using the Internet, <clears throat> there'd be all kinds of chat going on and stuff. But only once in a while would there be an interesting article or essay that would come along. And, and you know, and for be kind of rare. Right. Now, the level of discourse, the level of understanding, the level of articulation, and the number of people who are expressing themselves eloquently and intelligently, it's like grown. Mm. It's like because of the Internet, we've become uh, an intelligent network of people developing our ideas together and sharing ideas. And um, the process by which things get forwarded around the net, it's an intelligent process. Right. Now, it's like I get oh, 100 messages a day, and I have a way of sitting through them. And I'll, there'll be three mm. or four or five that are good. <laughs> Me too, and then those yeah. are all post my news log list. Yeah, yeah, I do and then there's a lot of other people that take my news log list and they select from that and publish. Uh, so this selective forwarding mm-hmm. is uh, like an, uh, that is a process of intelligence. That's how the brain works. It's got neurons and dendrites right. that connect and these network connections I shift I agree. I agree. as intelligence grows. And so in that sense, the, 
The Internet is an intelligence machine. It allows us to work together and to understand each other intelligently and, and grow our understanding. Right, and it even looks, you know, when you look at the, hier- the hierarchy, but when you look at the way, it, it actually doesn't have much of a hierarchy. It's more of a decentralized sort of thing, but it really does look like a nervous system. Yeah, it, it, it's the structure of a, of a neural net. It's the structure of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not so much when, you know, BBC publishes their news on the net. That's one thing. That's a centralized thing into the distribution network. But I'm talking about the way people share and forward right. information and right. linked information. Mm-hmm. That stuff is all very uh, peer-to-peer, horizontal, Absolutely. Uh, neural net-like, and, intelligence, brain-like. And you were a person who was, for a long time, involved in the software business. And I think you were in Southern California and the whole Silicon Valley revolution. And, and that's what... I mean, it's one of the reasons why you got involved in the web so early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I worked at Apple and Oracle, and I worked for companies even before that in the time-sharing business. And I mean, I was in companies working on prototypes of the network and stuff. So I understand all the technology part, but to see it in practice is like nothing that any of us dreamed of. Hmm. Nobody ever anticipates the real consequences of their inventions. Isn't that the truth? Um, so the net is important, but I don't see the. I, I'm not one of these people who thinks the net is the way to uh, create a democratic society. I think it's got to be place-based. It's got to be local-based. It's got to be face-to-face. Right. The net is a tool. It's a great tool. It's right. a wonderful tool, especially as the, in a democratic society, be an even more powerful tool. <laughs> but um, we had the whole hour-long discussion about what I think a democratic society would look like, and it's based on you know the dialogue, people understanding each other and actually building communities which have a sense of themselves that are self-governing, and then build up from there. So the question then is, how could we move toward that, right? And it's very interesting. It's a very um, The way we move toward that is by learning how to do that. In other words, um, if we start these dialogue processes in our communities, of course, we can do them on other bases, too. You could use these dialogue processes in a national conference or however you want, in any form. But I think a special focus, doing it in communities. If we started having dialogue in our communities and we started learning how to work together and learning how to understand each other and uh, not struggle against each other, um, we would be creating a cultural transformation. I mean, people who participated in this, especially if it happened over a period of time in the same area, there would be a cultural transformation going on there. People would start having a different attitude of their relationship to their community, their relationship to their neighbors. They would be more engaged with all of that. Um, and it, w- it would just be, a, you know, right now we don't have communities, really, unless you're really lucky and happen to live in some area that has a strong sense of community. But most of us don't have community. We drive to work, we come home, we turn on our TVs, we don't know our neighbors in many cases. You know, community is just a place where your car parks, you know, Right. So if we actually started rediscovering a sense of community involvement with community and a community able to work together to solve its problems, that would be a cultural transformation. It wouldn't be a political movement. It's a cultural transformation. And in participating in that cultural transformation, you're already creating the infrastructure of a democratic society. Hmm. So it's like um, we get there by learning how to do it. The very process by which we transform our cultures is the process by which we would be governing ourselves, you know, right. once we start governing ourselves. Right. 
So it's like the ends are the means are the ends, which is very promising because if you look at you know, political revolutions in the past, they always have an ends, which is going to be the you know, People's Republic or a democratic society or whatever. And they always sound good. Mm-hmm. But then the means is always some kind of revolutionary group or you know or political uh, centralized political group. So the means are always centralized. Even though the ends are supposed to be democratic, right? Right. And the point is, is the means always become the ends. Mm-hmm. Whatever group, whether it be the founding fathers or whether it be the Bolsheviks, whatever group it is that spearheads the new society becomes the ruler of the new society. So if you really want a democracy, a self-governing uh, society, then the means by which you achieve it better be a self-governing process as well, or else it's not going to work. Right. So the way to create a democratic society is to start which means the way to govern ourselves is to start learning to govern ourselves, start learning how to, which means learning how to work together. That's what it comes down to. Democracy means working together. It's a process. It's not an institution. If you really have a self-governing society, there's no such thing as a government. I mean, just like the, the Sioux Nation, they didn't have a government. I mean, each tribe and any smaller unit within a tribe governed itself by a process, but there was no government of the Sioux Nation. There was just occasional powwows to work out problems. Um, so self-governance is a process, not an institution. It's a way of working together. It's the ability to work together. Mm-hmm. And we can begin developing that right now. There's no law against people getting together in their communities and talking about their problems and figuring out common solutions. Right. Now, it's not illegal. It's not even a political act, really. It's, it's something we can do right. well, already. And this is a question that's coming up about... Well, what do we do? March down to City Hall? Or, in other words, that's probably not the the right answer. The answer is to just march into your own living room and have some friends come over and start talking about what's going on. City Hall, you're right. They don't have anything to do with it. It's like um, if people in the community started meeting, they don't need to invite the mayor or the city council to participate. I mean, if they want to come and participate as people, that's wonderful. But it's not like you're trying to influence them. If the people in the community got together on bigger and bigger basis till the whole community all agreed on what they wanted. Then they said, oh, by the way, there's an election coming up. Um, hey, well, let's choose some good people here that understand what we're all about and let them, um, let's vote them in as the mayor and the city council. 100% vote. I mean, once the community has solidarity, then, I mean, running the local city government, it becomes... it's obvious. It's, it doesn't take any political action or any march to city hall. You just mm-hmm. vote. Mm-hmm. So as territory becomes democratic, the, the, the local governments automatically just become agencies to uh, carry out what the people have decided they want. All right. All right. Look, um, I've taken a lot of questions off the, uh, off the chat room here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the phone number out to Richard in case anybody wants to give us a call, okay? Sure. Uh, the number here, everybody, if you're interested in giving us a call and if you have a question or a comment for Richard... The number is 573-443-8255. And uh, you can get on the air and express your opinion. That's what we're, that's what we're talking about doing tonight. So, At any rate, okay, Richard, we have lots of examples of the stuff that's already working. I mean, you make a number of, of cases in the book. You talk about, well, maybe we could, well, in general, the dynamics of harmonization. This is a big part of the book. The harmonization is a word I decided to use to refer to 
this process where people get together and instead of competing among solutions, they harmonize their interests into solutions and plans and agendas that make sense for everybody, take everybody's needs into account. Um, so I call that harmonization. So really, harmonization-based democratic process is kind of what the book is about, how it would work and how to achieve it. Um, and Jim Ruff's work and Tom Atley's work, those are examples of uh, research and progress that's being made in these uh, techniques, these processes, in small examples, usually. And what I'm really trying to do is saying how that can be extrapolated into a society-wide thing. What was the Michigan conference? Well, the Michigan conference, I, I mentioned it before, that's when... Um, I think the Fetzer Institute was heavily involved in that, and um, they brought together people who were as radically different as they could be and who were leaders in some uh, group or the other, usually. You know, like there would be somebody who was from the head of the Christian coalition or whatever. And so um, it was an experiment to say, well, if you can get these people to actually uh, bond, as it were, uh, intellectually and in their... Uh, dialogue, that proves that, I mean, almost anybody, <clears throat> you know, maybe even the Palestinians and the Israelis, <laughs> well, it's not going too far. Um, and, and in fact, this, this Michigan, con it worked. I mean, these people uh, surprised all of them, and maybe the organizers weren't surprised, but um, they were surprised at how, how much how they understood each other. The, the kind of thing they would do is say, okay, tell us the various political experiences you've had in your life or educational experiences that led you to where you are now. And so sometimes I say, well, no, I, I used to go to church all the time, say, and this happened and that happened. And, and I became this, I became a Republican. And he's, by the time he explains it all, he said, oh, okay, he's not, a, he's not a crazy person. He's not a stupid person. He just has a different life history than I do. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else would talk about why they joined the Weather Underground and were trying to blow up research facility, whatever their story was. And everybody, when they heard the person's life story, as it were, they said, okay, I understand that. That's a real person, and I can understand, you know, what they're concerned about. And they were able then to move beyond their differences and begin to have common understandings and common visions, and they came out saying, oh, well, this could transform American society if only we had these kinds of dialogues. Mm -hmm. Um problem with it, from my point of view, is that it was this at-large thing. It was a national thing. And all these people then go back to their own worlds. And they had a great feeling while they were together, but there really wasn't any way to follow through. Um, whereas if you do it on a community basis and you do it repeatedly, then it begins to take this whole process of dialogue and common understanding starts to take root in the community. There's a place for it to take root and become part of, uh, you know, daily dialogue. You know, people start, this happened for a few months, People start talking about it over coffee and stuff, and mm -hmm. there's a new kind of community dialogue going on all the time. Richard, what do you make of evolution in this whole thing? I mean, is it a cultural evolution of sorts, and individual evolution? I mean, do you, do you think that evolution, either as a real thing that's in play with us as well, human beings, or, or, or just as a metaphor, do you think that's something that's really happening here? Um, <coughs> excuse me. Sure. <laughs> That's a very good question, and there's about three levels that I'd like to mention there. Um, one of them is there, there's a, 
a lot of people out there, people I have respect for, and, and uh, have this notion that humanity needs to evolve to the next level of human consciousness. Mm. Um, and that that's what the transformation is going to be about. Now, when it, put in that way, I disagree with it. Because what it's doing is it's underestimating what humanity is. It's assuming that the reason we have these uh, exploitive societies is because human nature hasn't evolved yet to the next level. That's wrong. Right, because we, we, we've we, already... we know from, from these early civilizations, mm-hmm. not only that, we know from the previous 90,000 years of human, Homo sapiens history, mm-hmm. where we lived in small egalitarian hunter-gatherer bands mm-hmm. um, without hierarchy, it, it, it is a blasphemy against humanity to say that we need to go on to the next stage of evolution, and it's our fault we have these exploitive societies. So in that sense, I don't agree with this notion of evolution. I think humans are already totally capable of having an enlightened society. Uh-huh. Okay. And the only reason we don't is because we've been basically enslaved since 6,000 years ago, is what it comes down to. <laughs> and uh, so in that sense, I don't say we don't need another evolution to become enlightened. It's like we're already capable. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, there's a way of thinking of evolution that I would agree with, and that is, uh, as it would be evolution of society, not evolution of homo sapiens, mm-hmm. and that is to evolve to the point where we can have a complex global society which is run on a self-aware basis. It's just like what what distinguishes humans from other uh, species, one you know, kind of this, this self-awareness, self-observation, ability to look at ourselves and um, objectively, let's say, kind of from the outside and make decisions about it. Well, I'm going to do my life differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have a, a chimpanzee doesn't say, "Oh, I'm going to start doing my life differently." You know, they're intelligent and all, but they don't have self-introspection. And so, for humans, already have that. We don't need to evolve. We've got self-introspection. Society doesn't. Society just is something run as a machine by rulers. Mm-hmm. For society to evolve where it's run on a self-aware, self-governing basis, that would be an evolution, but a society of evolution, not a society of humans. Mm-hmm. It's a society in which our, we're all, our already enlightened natures can express themselves, mm-hmm. but we're not the ones who need to evolve. Okay. All right. You know, you, you made me think, we were talking about systems theory a little bit before, and there was a guy, I forget who his name was, but, but he said something like, uh, human beings are not machines, but whenever given the opportunity to act as machines, they will. <laughs> well, what, well what, what do you make a statement like that? I mean, with regard um, to, you know, to demo, democratic participation and all this sort of thing. I mean, there are a lot, no, are, are there, what about the people that, that just makes, have no interest and they don't want to be a part of it? There may be some truth to say that if, if people have an easy path, you know, that gets them something, they'll just follow it <clears throat> without thinking much. Well, that may be true, but I think a, a more useful characterization of that is that if you put people in cages, then they will behave like caged machines. Mm. Um, that's a for sure, and yeah. that's our situation. Right. Right. So, like, when people say, well, I've studied human nature um, in Los Angeles, and I've decided that people are basically selfish. Right. 
It's like examining well, a cheetah like in a cage in a zoo. That's like observing, like I say in the book, that's like observing a cheetah in the cage. Right. Oh, well, the nature of cheetahs is to pace back and forth and wait for meals to be thrown through the cage. That's that's how cheetahs work. Well, it's bullshit. You know, you go out mm. in Africa and you find out how cheetahs really work. <laughs> that's right. And it's a lot more interesting. Right, right, right. right. Um, and same with humans. I mean, civilization is a cage. <laughs> and if and, and we, there are uh, games set up, you know, the education game, the employment game, the investment game, you know, this, and you know, there you are, you're stuck in this game, and in order to survive and support your family, you've got to play it. And if, that, and if the way you play it is by competing, then, okay, we're competitive, but it's because that's the game that's been set up. doesn't mean that's our exclusive nature. All right. Well, I think that's good uh, that, that we clarify that because, you know, the idea, there, there seems to be a general idea among many people that just, you know, it's just the whole original sin and that whole bit, you know, we're just born bad. Well, those myths were invented back in the Middle East um, about the time these hierarchical civilizations were being established. And I know it's not true because I have... A, you know, a, a son who's going on three years old, and 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 another baby who's going to be born any 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 day, any minute, uh, and they're not born bad; they're born perfect. No. <laughs> Anybody who's raised kids, that's right. Has any sensitivity knows that. All right. Well, look, Richard, we're going to take one more quick one here, okay? And we'll come back, and we'll have about twenty sure. minutes to finish things up. And yeah. uh, it's been wonderful, and we've got a little bit more time with Richard K. Moore in just a few minutes. But we have to take a quick break here. We're at the bottom of the hour. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. You can find out information about Richard K. Moore on the web at www.cyberjournal.org and also at escapingthematrix.org. And you'll always be able to link over to Richard's site's from my site over at MikeHagan.com, and you will also be able to download and listen to and share this conversation and this show along with any of the previous ones that we've done uh, just by hopping on the web at MikeHagan.com. Just go over to the archives and grab it and share it and talk about it. Agree, disagree, do whatever, but uh, it's there for you and for others, okay? All right, one more uh, from Lizzie here. This one is called... Thank you. Thank you for giving us the morning. Thank you for giving us the day. Thank you for
Yeah, thank you, Lizzie. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, you've heard some lovely music this evening from Lizzie West and the White Buffalo. Again, all stuff that we've heard tonight from her and Tony's recently released CD called I Pledge Allegiance to Myself. All right, and we'll hear one more from them uh, to close things out in about 20 or so. All right. Okay, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on the web, Mike Hagan, H-A-G-A-N.com. We've been speaking with Richard K. Moore for, sheesh, uh, two and a half hours nearly, and uh, talking about his book, Escaping the Matrix, and, um, well, sort of about our situation as human beings on planet Earth these days and what's going on and what we might do to help ourselves in the future. So, Richard, let's um, continue along these lines. I've got um, something that's come up. Uh, actually, I had a phone call uh, during the break there. Uh, a, a woman, as a matter of fact, didn't want to go on the air but had a question. Good. And Dialogue is what it's about. Yes, uh, and it comes down to nature. Uh, w- one of the things that we've we touched on briefly, but we haven't talked a whole lot about it, but this woman says, what, what about nature and about uh, reestablishing a connection between ourselves and the other inhabitants of this planet and the planet itself. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of talk these days about Gaia 
and about the planet as a you know an actual sentient life form in some uh, strange maybe unfamiliar way but sentient nonetheless well, uh, let's talk a little bit about nature and how that all plays into this well it's simply common sense to recognize that we live within a life support system and uh, you know, the oceans and life in the ocean and the food chain and then there's you know and the diversity of life and that is a that is a big uh, support me- mechanism for us. That's how we live. And um, any sensible society um, needs to live in harmony with that if it's going to survive. And um, earlier societies and pre-civilized societies all knew this. It was all part of their worldview, part of their ethic, part of their philosophy, part of their religion, part of their economics. Um, so it goes without saying that when we start making sensible decisions, those are going to be based on common sense economics, you know, interacting with our environment in a, in a way that serves us and preserves our environment for future generations. Right. Anything else is nonsense. You know, in a way... Um, go ahead, I'm sorry. So I, I don't emphasize... that. We need a sustainable society in in my work, as a, particularly because there's hundreds of people doing that. There's mm-hmm. all, in copy, all kinds of books about that, and plus everybody knows it who watches television because there's all these documentaries about um, you know how the ocean works and the sea creatures and the vanishing species and and how the currents all are needed to nourish each other and all this stuff. I mean that's part of the common consciousness. And when we get to the point where we are running our own societies, then that's the basis of soul energy. Hmm. Um, so I agree entirely with that stuff. It's just not the center of my work because it's the center of so many other people's work. And I think the real thing is achieving the democracy so and the self-governance so that we can then start living sensibly. Right. And that would be one of the things we do, for sure. Right. Appropriate technology as well. You know. Right. Well, th- the one thing that I would add, and, and I'm being boosted f- from friends that are telling me that I need to add this, is that if there is an angle that's not being covered by environmentalists and and, and the nature gang and all that, it's, well, the ideas of shamanism. In other words, we're, we're talking about social transformation. Social transformation comes from personal transformation, and people are making the connection saying that personal transformation, in many cases comes from, you know, visionary plants and fungi that alter consciousness and perturb brain chemistry and, you know, uh, the psychedelics. Uh, well, I disagree that social transformation starts with personal transformation. Hmm. All right. I don't agree with that. Um, I think social transformation starts with cultural transformation. And that, that was the thesis, I mean, that was the thesis I presented. Right, right. Um, it's our societies that need to change. And that can only happen by a cultural transformation. But aren't cultures made up of individuals? Well, yeah, and a painting is made up of individual paint strokes. But the, um, the culture is a thing itself. People participate in the culture. And, you know, it's an interplay between individual consciousness and, and with cultural processes. Now, that 
is not to contradict that personal transformation is not an important part of this as well. But I think if humans are social animals, first and foremost, mm-hmm. among the you know the animal kingdom, we are in that part which is social species. Right, I agree. Others which aren't social species, but we happen to be very much a social species. <clears throat> and so um, our part of our psychology and our identity is very hooked into how our cultures happen to operate. So I think that it would not it's not at all surprising that personal cult- transformation and cultural transformation wouldn't happen together. I see them as happening together. Mm. Um and as social beings, things generally, personal things and cultural things generally do happen together. So just as we had our cultural transformation toward what we was hoping to be a democratic society, we also had a personal transformation at the level of uh, independence and self-reliance and you know, all this. And this sort of goes with the idea of cultural democracy. So personal transformations tend to go along with cultural transformations. And when there have been revolutions, there have generally been uh, personal attitude transformations and cultural transformations that were part of it. So in these, for instance, in these uh, dialogue processes I've been talking about, uh, there does seem to be a personal transformation that happens as part of it. So as the people uh, realize they can work together and understand each other and there's this new collective energy and power that they didn't see before, that's also a personal transformation in terms of their attitude toward other people and toward what's possible in society. So personal and cultural transformation happen together as part of the same process. Um, but where I disagree with the way you were saying it <clears throat> is that that would lead people to say, well, I'm going to go off and meditate or I'm going to take yoga or I'm going to uh, take drugs and become a shaman. And when all of us have transformed ourselves personally <clears throat> on personal paths, then we can come together and transform society. Mm. And if we follow that path, we're never going to get there. Mm. Um if we emphasize the dialogue and cultural transformation, then we'll get to personal transformation, too. But you can't put one before the other. You've got to go ahead and do both of them right. together. Right. They have to happen together. And I agree with you. I think that's true. I think that's true. And again, many of these things, a lot of these things are just tools we're talking about. How do we get there? You know? Yeah. Wow. Amazing. All right. So, let's see. What else? Uh, well, there's one thing. There was one little thing that I could... Bring in one way of looking at these things, please. Unless you've got, unless you've got a good question. No, I had a question about um, education, but we can still get to that. So, well, it, uh, this is something that came up in some uh, discussions I was having the other day. It has to do with <clears throat> the whole idea of individualism <clears throat> and considering individualism in two different contexts. One, the context of society, the individual and society. The other is the family, the individual and the family. <clears throat> okay. Now, today in society, in our you know democracies, our republics, uh, our attitude is: Hey, I am an individual, and it's my right and my duty almost to pursue my individual path in life, my individual choice. Um, now, we within that will say: Okay, well, I will obey the laws of the land. I accept the laws of the land. Within that, though, you know, I go out, I start a business, I do what I can for myself, and that's okay. Um, and if somebody tells me I should be thinking of the group or whatever, well, you know, screw you. I'm, you know, I'm starting a business. I don't got time for that. Well, that's all right. So that's that's one ethic about individualism. Okay. Now, on the other hand, consider the role of individuals in a, in a family. Now, there, we temper our individualism. <laughs> say, well, 
uh, I'd really like to go spend the day at the pub, but I really need to work, otherwise my kids are going to starve. <laughs> so you take you take the whole family into account. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean everybody's equal. You know, it's not necessarily a democracy. Maybe mm-hmm. daddy decides or mommy decides. But still, the family is taken into account. When you make a family, so you are willing to balance your individual desires with the family needs to some extent, you know, in governing a family. Certainly, yeah. Right? Yeah, oh yeah. So, um, so in this cultural transformation toward becoming a self-governing society, I think that one of the things we need to do, even those of us who are rugged individualists and all that, we need to think, what if we think, look at our society a little bit more like a family? You know, a little bit, I'm not saying exactly, but a little bit more like a family. And that it does make sense for us to take the whole community need into account. Right. And what well, we think policy should be and how people, you know, how we should um, direct our own efforts. Right. Uh, there are a couple things that come to mind, if I could just add real quickly. Sure, right? you, know, sure. you know, we talked a little bit about Native indigenous cultures and that. And uh, also, you know, I'm thinking that in prehistory, there was certainly a time, I mean, I guess I'm assuming, but a time when fathership of children wasn't really known, you know what I mean? And, and children were considered the children as opposed to my children, you know what I mean? And so there was much more of a family extended family ethic where it was before you know paternity and that sort of stuff really became such yeah. a driving force well there's um you're right in your main points but i don't think there was never a time no when people were so naive that they didn't know what babies came from and didn't mm. know about periods and didn't know about fertility cycle i mean People knew that right. always. Right. And, and again, you, you mentioned, you know, human beings as such have been around at least a hundred thousand years, just like you and me. But just like us. Yeah, but but the difference has been cultural and and, and language, yeah. such a strange thing. Well, so the thing is, is to be what they call it, nuclear family mm-hmm. um, was never wasn't that central in these cultures. Right. Um, there were nuclear families. They did have their own teepee, so to speak. Right. And their own bow and arrow, and you know, and their own horses, and you know, whatever. Um, but the men would be off uh, hunting or, or skirmishing with the men in the neighboring tribes, and the women would be doing most of the work and providing most of the food by hunting and gathering, and maybe some kind of small-scale cultivation. Uh, and the kids would be running around, you know learning, you know, out on the playground all the time, or maybe a lot of times little girls would follow their mommy around with a, with a dolly, a tattoo dolly, you know. And so, this, you know, different people had different roles, and it wasn't the case that a nuclear family had to be responsible for the upbringing of their child. It was, like, done on a community basis. Just like uh, what a Hillary Clinton say, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, okay, she said the right words anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know any elder or you know, any, if, if some kids were off doing some burning some down somebody's teepee down or something, well then anybody, anybody nearby would you know, give them a harsh look, whatever it took. So right, right. You wouldn't have to call daddy. <laughs> right, and there weren't need for policemen and this sort of thing, right? <laughs> Come in and discipline the child, you know. Right. Also, they didn't have much in the way of discipline. Um, uh, at least in the, like I was reading about, especially about the Ogawa series, mm-hmm. um, if kids didn't want to eat, they didn't want to eat. If they didn't want to go to bed, they didn't want to go to bed. I mean, they expected to learn on their own. Right, figure it out. If 
They go to the breakfast hour dinner, they find out there's tummy growls, and they can cry tomorrow they eat. Mm-hmm. Um, very little coercion, very little didactic lesson teaching. It was more, you know, learn from our, learn from our example and from your own experience. Right. And then there also would be rites of translation. There'd be time when you would go on your vision quest and become a, go from a boy to a man or whatever, a girl to a woman. And all yeah, that. rites of passage and, and initiatory rites, which I think is important. I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, you know, I, I've, you know, it's Monday night. My show's on Monday night, right? And here in the States, Monday night is football night, you know? And, and uh, it's amazing to me. I, I went to lunch today, and at the little restaurant that I was at when I went to lunch, they had ESPN up, right? And uh, I don't watch the TV much, Richard, you know? But I used to be a big sports head, you know what I mean? I was, I was, yeah. I was as, as, as embedded in the Matrix as anybody. And, uh, but I don't watch much TV anymore. And anyway, when I do, now I'm fascinated by it, you know? And I watched ESPN for a half an hour or so while I was at lunch today. And my God, you know, if you didn't know any better, you'd think this was the, the most serious of business. <laughs> you, know, you know, and uh, and men, uh, certainly, and, and, and I guess to a certain extent some women or whatever get, get, get sucked up in it as well. But, I mean, it's bread and circuses. And we have a bunch of boys uh, that are running around in men's bodies and suits, you know. Well, I don't get Fox News here in Ireland, and and so when I go back to the States <clears throat> every year to see my family, um, so I get to see Fox News, and it's like so gross. It, remember, I remember back in Iron Curtain days, I went, I visited Prague mm. as a student. I've been to Prague too many times. And I saw some of their local propaganda on TV and in the theater, movie house, you know, and it was so blatant. Mm-hmm. smiling people dancing under their happy red banner or something. It's like, so gross. <laughs> and I said, oh, we don't, all right, we don't have anything like that in the States. Right. Um, but now Fox News, I swear, it's like so phony. That's amazing. So much of theatrical presentation. It's like, um, it's just so over the top. And you it's wonder how like, many... Just like it was in the Iron Curtain days in the Soviet Union. Yeah, and, and I'm, I mean, for me... I'm, you know, I so believe in the matrix that I don't believe anything. In other words, I have no faith in any of the polls. I don't know what. It, you know, all I know is my personal experience. You know what, what the people around me that I know that I have clarity on. You know what they're saying and thinking or whatever. And I tell you what, regardless of what's happening, Richard, that most people are saying that we are on the cusp of something. That something has to give, and we're, you know, there are great changes on the horizon now. However, you want to incorporate those into your life or make, you know, or, or uh, well, experience yes, it. People have got to stop waiting for it, you yeah. know. They talk about the 100th monkey. Yeah. Uh, what, what, are they the 100th monkey? Are they waiting for 99 other monkeys to lead the way? Right. I mean, right. okay, there's big changes coming, and it's time for all of us to start doing them. Do it, yeah. And um, yeah. my recommendation, you know, everybody has a recommendation. My particular recommendation is by starting to create enlightened dialogue in your communities, and it's and it's something you need to learn how to do, and there's ways to do it. And I've got a bunch of links on my website, but there are Tom Atley's website, cointelligence.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Atley's website is what, tobe.org or something. But just look up Tom Atley, Jim Ruff, and my stuff, and you'll find the links. There are known ways. There are facilitators you can consult with or retain, you know. Also takes as a... Also take a group of three or four people in a town, do a little fundraising and organize a couple sessions. It's no big deal. Mm-hmm. It's a lot less work than most political campaigns and stuff. 
and we could and we can start the transformation. And every one of us can play a role in getting it started. So don't sit there and wait as the hundredth monkey. Get out there and be the first ninety-nine. <laughs> All right. I think that is fantastic, Rich, and I think it's a great way to sort of wrap things up, okay? Thank you very much, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, man. You too, Richard. And thank you so much for all the work that you've done. It's, uh, your, your career has been a really interesting one, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that, uh, that, that I, I got introduced to you. So. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's wonderful. And everybody, the book, uh, again, Escaping the Matrix. Uh, how can people get it, uh, Richard? Uh, Amazon, I guess, Barnes & Noble. Oh, it's, it's on Amazon and the Libris and Barnes and & Noble, and it's on discounts. So um, it's pretty easy to get. Okay, and, and, and locally here, I know that uh, there are a couple, or at least there's one bookstore here in town uh, that, that, um, that I'm trying at least to, to get it carried in. So, and, and the full name, it's Escaping the Matrix, How We the People Can Change the World. How We the People Can Change the World. How about it? So there's another Escaping the Matrix. There's something about finding yourself in Christ or something. I didn't write that one. Hmm. Ah, yeah, that, that was, yeah. How we the people can change the world. <laughs> How ironic. All right, well, uh, Richard, we'll, 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 we'll talk again, okay? And, and thanks for everything. Take care Please of yourself. Please enter your destination number followed by the pound key. How about that? That's very strange. <laughs> All right, well, I guess that's the way to wrap things up. My destination followed by the pound key. How about if we finish things off with Lizzie West and the White Buffalo? And... Uh, We'll come back and talk to you in a week's time. Hopefully I'll have another son to tell you about by then. And um, I look forward to talking to you next week. Next week, actually, uh, we didn't really do some of the standard stuff this week, but we'll catch up next week. And our guests will be Kevin and Matthew Taylor, the authors of Land of No Horizon. Okay? All right, it's Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in a week, as I said. And a big thank you to Richard K. Moore author of Escaping the Matrix. You can find out more about Richard on the web at www.cyberjournal.org, also at escapingthematrix.org, and you can always link there from mikehagan.com, and this show will be in the archives within a day or so. All right? All right, thanks to everybody for participating. Had a great time, and uh, 911. Here's to it.
Brother and sister, we are here. 